0: I'm Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast to get you thinking about biblical and historical Christianity, to challenge you to follow Christ, and to inspire you to lead a consecrated life. Last night, Dr. Michael Brown and Dr. Dale Tuggy debated the question, is the God of the Bible the Father alone? Tuggy affirmed, while Brown denied. Here's what's great about this debate. Both scholars recognized the inspiration and the authority of scripture over tradition. Both made an effort to found their beliefs using the Bible, reason, and history. The debate went for nearly three hours and followed this format. First, there were opening statements, then rebuttals, then there were two rounds of cross-examination, followed by concluding statements, and a lengthy period of Q&A from the audience. I don't want to say too much about the debate here so that you could form your own opinion, but I am hoping to follow up with both sides, Brown and Tuggy, and score post-debate interviews. I'll let you know if that happens. I I've also decided not to break this up into a bunch of different segments, but just to give you the whole thing, so feel free to pause and come back to it later. You probably can't do it all in one sitting. But here now, without further ado, is episode 158, Is Jesus God? with Dale Tuggy and Michael Brown.
1: Good evening, everybody. Welcome to our Fire Church people, as well as students at Fire School of Ministry and uh, most hearty welcome to all who are visiting with us tonight uh, for the debate between Dr. Michael Brown and Dr. Dale Tuggy. The organizer of tonight's event, Kingdom of God Ministry and Missions, would like to thank Dr. Dale Tuggy and Dr. Michael Brown for debating the important question of, is the God of the Bible the Father alone? KOG Missions also thank Fire Church for hosting the event and the following Sponsors. 21st Century Reformation for the video work and the Church of God General Conference and Restoration Fellowship for funding this debate. We're going to have a uh, debate on the subject of whether the Father alone is the God of the Bible. We'll begin with opening statements. Each will present for 20 minutes. It'll be followed by 12-minute rebuttals. Then there will be a cross-examination which uh, will be seven minutes apiece in four segments alternating speakers. Closing statements for each will be five minutes. And after that, we'll have uh, some time for a question and answer period. And uh, we will ask everybody to ask questions, alternating their questions to each speaker so everybody gets the same number of questions asked. So take good notes, prepare yourselves, And uh, be ready to ask the tough questions that you didn't hear asked during the debate, because sometimes the Q&A can be the most exciting part of the debate. Okay, so we're going to introduce our participants. The question is, uh, is the God of the Bible the Father alone? The person answering yes to that question will be the first to speak, and that is Dr. Dale Tuggy. Uh, Dr. Tuggy uh, is a Ph.D. from Brown University. He is a producer and host of the Trinity's podcast and the author of What is the Trinity? Formerly a professor at the State University of New York at Fredonia for 18 years, he has published scholarly papers on various Trinitarian and non-Trinitarian Christian theologies. He resides with his wife and children in Middle Tennessee where they attend Higher Ground Church, a congregation within the Church of God General Conference. And after Dr. Tuggy speaks, Dr. Michael brown Will follow. He is the founder and president of Ask Dr. Brown Ministries and Fire School of Ministry in Concord, North Carolina. He's also the host of the daily nationally syndicated talk radio show, The Line of Fire, as well as the host of the apologetics TV show, Answering Your Toughest Questions, which airs on the NRB TV network. He's the author of more than 30 books, holds a PhD in Near Eastern Languages and Literatures from New York University, and has served as a visiting or adjunct professor at seven leading ceremonies. We're going to adhere to the uh, time requirements uh, strictly, which uh, should be posted within the view of the speakers on the back wall. And we have a backup timer in the front row by the camera. So uh, either way, you should be able to know uh, how much time you have left. And uh, we will begin with Dr. Tuggy. Would you please uh, step up and make your presentation?
2: I wanna start by thanking Kingdom of God Ministry of Missions for organizing and sponsoring the debate, and also the other sponsors, 21st Century Reformation, Restoration Fellowship, and the Church of God General Conference, which is the denomination of my church, Higher Ground Church in White House, Tennessee. Finally, my thanks to Dr. Brown for being willing to debate this important topic, and to Fire Church for hosting this event. I was born into an independent charismatic church in 1970, And I was born again and baptized in that church in 1978. And it's an honor for me to be here with you. My thesis is that the God of the Bible is not the Trinity because the God of the Bible is the Father alone. The New Testament is just as monotheistic as the Old Testament, but it also tells us who this one God is. And contrary to Catholic traditions in the New Testament, the one God is not the Trinity. In the New Testament, this one God is, is the one Jesus referred to as our Father in heaven, the one Paul calls God the Father. In the New Testament, the one God just is the Father, and the Father just is the one God. They are one and the same. This is the defining thesis of any Unitarian Christian theology, and it's contradicted by any Trinitarian theology. A Trinitarian thinks that the one God is the tripersonal God, but no one thinks that the Father is tripersonal, The Trinitarian says that the one God is the Trinity. And so the Father gets demoted to being, in some sense, one-third of God, whether a part of God, a personality of God, a mode of God, or a person within God. The Trinitarian's theory requires that the one God is not numerically the same as the Father, but rather he must distinguish the one God, the tripersonal God, from the Father. But here, fourth-century speculations clash with plain New Testament teaching. We can observe this identification of the one God with the Father in every New Testament author. They rarely state this commitment because it was not then disputed, but occasionally they express it clearly. In John 17, 1 through 3, Jesus reveals his belief that the Father is the only true God. And if the Father is the only true God, then no one else is. In 1 Corinthians 8, Paul tells us that while the pagans believe in various gods, as far as we Christians are concerned, there is one God, the Father. In John 8:54, Jesus says to his Jewish opponents, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, he of whom you say, he is our God. Right. The God of the Jews, the only God in Old, in Old Testament and New Testament, is the one Jesus calls my Father. In Acts, the message preached to Jews is that the God of our ancestors has glorified his servant Jesus. In Judaism and in the New Testament, the one God is understood not to be a human being, but rather a God, in fact, the only God. In contrast, Jesus is everywhere in the New Testament portrayed as a real man. In John 8.40, Jesus describes himself as a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. The New Testament Jesus is not God. Rather, he is God's Messiah, his special human agent, called the Son of God. Paul writes to Timothy that there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. And this one God, Paul thinks, is the Father. The New Testament explicitly states seven times that the Father is Jesus' God, and Jesus is portrayed as calling the Father my God in seven other places. These Father as Jesus' God's texts are not the subject of significant interpretive, translation, or textual disputes. In the New Testament, like you, Jesus is subject to the unique God, the Father. Thus, Jesus is not taught to be the same God as the Father or any God at all. There's only one God, the Father, and he is, Paul says, the head of Jesus, his Christ. I want to spend the rest of my opening statement comparing two hypotheses in the light of six indisputable facts about the New Testament. The two hypotheses are, first, that these authors believe the one God to be the Father alone. Second hypothesis is that these authors in the New Testament think the one God is the Trinity, If a fact is just what we would expect, given the truth of one hypothesis, but that same fact would be surprising, given the truth of a rival hypothesis, then that fact confirms the one hypothesis over the other. Notice that this procedure does not presuppose Unitarian theology. It doesn't presuppose any controversial thesis whatever. First fact, all four Gospels feature a mere man-compatible main thesis. This is the thesis that Jesus is God's Messiah. While this thesis is plainly and repeatedly stated throughout these books, it's highlighted at certain key moments. In the first three Gospels, Jesus privately asks his disciples who they think he is, and their leader, Peter, replies, you are the Messiah. And towards the end of the fourth Gospel, John states his main thesis. These signs are written so that you may come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that through believing you may have life in his name. Wait, that's it? Nothing about Jesus being God, God the Son, having a divine nature, being the God-man, Jesus as second person of the Trinity? This simple thesis only mentions the man Jesus' uniquely important role as God's Messiah, saying nothing at all about his alleged deity, is what we'd expect if the author thinks the one God just is the Father. It's not at all what we would expect if he were a Trinitarian. And this confirms that these authors are Unitarians, not Trinitarians. Second fact, in the New Testament, the word God nearly always refers to the Father, and no word in the New Testament refers to the Trinity. No word was then understood to refer to the Trinity. If the New Testament authors were Trinitarians, we'd expect them to sometimes use the word God to refer to the Trinity, but they never do. And we'd expect them to somewhat spread around the title God, around the three of them, often calling the Son or the Spirit God in addition to the Father. But this is not what we see. In the New Testament, God is nearly always the Father. All textual scholars agree on this. In a small handful of cases, no more than eight in the whole New Testament, it can be argued that God refers to the Son, the term God refers to the Son. But we know that in biblical terminology, a human who is subject to God can be referred to and or addressed using the title God. Jesus makes this very point in John 10, 34, quoting Psalm 82. We also see it in Hebrews 1 through 9, quoting Psalm 45. While many latter-day readers suppose that only the one God should be called God, biblical authors don't assume that. Even so, all New Testament authors are very stingy about applying the word God to anyone other than the Father. This would be very surprising if they were Trinitarians, but it's just what we'd expect if they hold that the one God is the Father alone. It's vanishingly unlikely that the New Testament authors believed in a triune God, and yet had no word or phrase by which to refer to that God. The very, first, the very first thing a Trinitarian will do is to coin a word or phrase to refer to the triune God as such. They didn't need to use the word Trinity. They could just coin a new use of the word God. They could talk of the heavenly three or the triple God, the divine three, etc. But we don't see any term or phrase in the Bible which was then understood to refer to a tripersonal God. These authors' lack of any word or phrase for the Trinity is exactly what we'd expect if they instead held the one God to be the Father alone. In some, New Testament God terminology reflects their thinking that the one God is the Father, and so not the Trinity. Fact number three. In the New Testament, only the Father and the man Jesus are worshipped. One would expect Trinitarian authors to authorize, model, or portray worship of the Trinity as a whole, or at least the worship of all three persons of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit. But there are exactly two objects of worship in the New Testament, God and the human Son of God. This is plainly seen in Revelation 4 and 5. One might worry that two objects of worship means two gods, but Paul explicitly teaches in Philippians 2.11 that the worship we give to the exalted Jesus is to the glory of God the Father. Jesus is not a second God, rivaling God. Rather, he is God's human son, and it honors God when we worship Jesus. His exaltation to God's right hand implies that all must worship him, not as God, not confusing him with his and our God, but rather as the exalted son of God. It's not a case, as Paul says in Romans one twenty five, of worshiping the creature uh, rather than the creator. Jesus, being a man, is a creature, yes, but in worshiping him, we thereby worship the creator, the one God who raised and exalted him. This pattern of worship would be quite a shock if the New Testament authors were Trinitarians. First, we'd expect to see the Holy Spirit worshiped at least once. Second, we'd expect the Son to be an ultimate object of worship, like God, so that worshiping him isn't to the glory of any other. Third, we'd expect to see the triune God worshiped somewhere, anywhere. It never happens. Nor do we see the later Trinitarian idea that the son, that the Father and Son are two persons within God, so that somehow they should count as the same God the actual New Testament pattern of worship disconfirms the theory that the New Testament authors are Trinitarians. And like our other facts, it confirms that they are Unitarians. Fact number four, the God, uh, that God is triune or tripersonal is never a clear assertion of any passage in the New Testament. Core Jewish theology is always assumed. In the Gospels, Jesus is an extremely confident and opinionated man who taught as, ha- as one having authority. If he had believed there needed to be a correction or an addition to standard Jewish teaching about God, we would expect him to say so. But he never gets around to telling us that God is three persons in one essence. In conversation with one of his fellow Jews in Mark 12, Jesus simply quotes the famous Shema from Deuteronomy 6.4, basically the statement that God is unique. And he gives no hint that the Jews of his day misunderstood it. John tells us that God's eternal word comes to us most fully in this man. And Paul tells us that Jesus is the very wisdom of God. I suggest that we take Jesus seriously as a theologian. He teaches that God is our and his Father, but he never teaches that God is a trinity. Neither do Paul, Peter, John, or the author of Hebrews, make this a teaching point. They teach at length about things like resurrection, the second coming of Jesus, food sacrificed to idols, and how Christians should behave. But at no point do they inform us that Jewish monotheism is somehow too stingy, because it can finally be told that God is multipersonal. This would be a shocking omission for Trinitarian authors, but these are not Trinitarian authors. Fact number five, there is no trace of any first-century controversy about whether or not Christian theology is truly monotheistic. Everywhere Trinitarian theology goes, it creates controversy, particularly at first and especially when interacting with rival monotheistic religions like Judaism and Islam. Its opponents commonly denounce it as confused, Tritheistic, not a genuine variety of monotheism, or as akin to pagan polytheism. After all, the Nicene Creed describes the Father and Son as, quote, true God from true God, which sounds on the face of it like two gods. But no such controversy occurs in the first Christian century. The reason is that there were not any Trinitarians at that time. The main New Testament era controversies are about whether or not Jesus is God's Messiah. Whether, and whether or not, Paul, as Paul taught, non-Jews could be fully acceptable to God without full Torah observance. But there is no whiff of any controversy about God being multipersonal. If Christians in the New Testament era were Trinitarians, this would be very surprising. How could their Jewish opponents fail to notice? But it's exactly what we'd expect to see if back then, Christians thought that the one God is the Father alone. Fact number six. No New Testament author lifts a finger to limit or qualify clear implications of the son's limitations. New Testament writings explicitly assert that Jesus got his mission, his authority, his message, and his power from God. No writer shows any embarrassment about Jesus' dependence on God in these ways, even though for a Jew, God does not take orders from anyone And God does not get his authority, message, or power from any other. Nor do these authors make the convoluted distinctions beloved by some Trinitarians that Jesus was subordinated as man but not as divine. Moreover, Jesus tells us that he didn't know the day or hour of his return. Although God did, these authors are unembarrassed to imply that Jesus at that time knew less than God. Hence, their consistent portrayals of him as learning, asking questions, even feeling anxious about what's going to happen. Like us, the New Testament Jesus puts his faith and trust in God. They even quote him without comment as implying that God is good in some way that Jesus is not. Again, the New Testament is explicit that God is immortal, whereas it's also explicit that the man Jesus died. Happily, his God then raised him and made him immortal. In contrast, we should think that God is essentially immortal, and this not because of any other. The New Testament always portrays Jesus as a real man. He has a real human mom, although according to Matthew and Luke, not a human father. Rather, God miraculously made Mary pregnant. Jesus, the angel in Luke 1.35 says, is begotten in Mary by God. As with ordinary human reproduction, it's assumed there that Jesus was brought into existence at some point in that miraculous pregnancy. He's not portrayed as having traveled from some other realm and entering into Mary's womb. Of course, the one God, by definition, is eternal. He never began to exist. How can these authors sit back while the reader infers that Jesus came to exist in this miraculous pregnancy? Notably, no New Testament author shows any concern, any concern to assert the eternal existence of the Son of God. Unlike partisans of the Nicene Creed since the 4th century, New Testament authors don't say anything to rule out that Jesus came into existence. Do you think that some New, Te- New Testament passage teaches Jesus' preexistence? I'll remind you that he's supposed to be a real man, a descendant of David. But for the purposes of this debate, I'll grant you that Jesus existed before the world was created. That would make him really, really old. But notice that existing before the creation of the cosmos does not imply having always existed. That's just not a New Testament teaching that Jesus always existed. All these apparent limits on Jesus are simply left to stand in the New Testament. This is wildly unlikely if the authors are Trinitarians, but it makes sense if they simply had no need to argue for the deity of Christ because like other Jews, other Jews they believed in exactly one deity, God the Father. We should be good Protestants and reject even old and prestigious human traditions when they conflict with clear biblical teaching. There is such a conflict here. The Bible teaches that the one God is the Father alone. Later traditions since the late 300s AD have said that the one God is not the Father, but rather the Trinity. So much the worse for those traditions. In my view, we should learn our theology from the Lord Jesus and his hand-picked apostles. In conclusion, you might wonder, who is this guy? How did I come to these views? The answer is I was born and raised in Trinitarian churches, although they were Bible-oriented evangelical churches. We didn't particularly talk about the Trinity, except when we sang that one uh, God in Three Persons Blessed Trinity uh, hymn. Uh, But it was never really a a subject of a sermon. I started to actually look into it carefully when I was a graduate student at Brown. And I just assumed up, well, look, obviously all Christians believe in the Trinity. There's some crazy cultists running around and some arrogant rationalists who don't, who don't believe in things they don't understand. Um, so I'm just going to figure this out. Christian philosophers were trying to work out a way to understand the standard formula that God is three persons in one essence. And they started working out five or six different theories about that. And I said, well, one of these has got to work. This has got to be true. It can't really be contradictory. And I was pretty surprised to learn that they all had pretty serious problems. This drove me back to the New Testament. What really shocked me is that the arguments from the New Testament to the Trinity were very weak. And then I started to look into the history of it. I discovered that there have been, since the Reformation, Protestants who thought that this is one more Catholic development that needs to be rolled back in light of the Bible. And so, uh, it took me about 10 years to really fully make up my mind about it. I was very, very slow. I, again, I thought one of these theories had to work, but they don't. Thank God the Bible makes sense. Thank you.
3: All right. Thanks so much, everyone, for coming out tonight. Thanks for tuning in to the live stream. And thanks, Dr. Tuggy for your comments, which I am super eager to rebut. Just for the moment, let me point out there's not a Catholic bone in my body. Everything to me is what scripture says. Uh, The fact is, Dr. Tuggy claims that Jesus is simply a glorified man, and I want to declare in the clearest possible terms that the Son of God of the Bible, the one we rightly worship as God, is infinitely more than a glorified man. To make him into a glorified man is to deny the clear and consistent witness of scripture, To make him into a glorified man is to neuter the gospel, since the idea that a glorified man died for our sins is hardly a demonstration of the immeasurable love of God. To the contrary, when God sent his son to pay for our crimes, he was giving of his very self. So again, I'm eager to rebut Dr. Tuggy's opening comments, and it's clear that a lot of his difficulties come from the fact that the son took on human form, hence praying to the father and having the father as his God. But for now in my opening statement I'll lay out the clear scriptural case that the son is fully divine and since there's only one god then god must be complex in his unity simply stated this one god has revealed to himself to us as father, son and spirit and if we accept the testimony of the scripture this is the only fair conclusion now for Dr. Tuggy and others this is a logical contradiction but the day we can fully wrap our minds around the nature of God is the day we've reduced him to our level, thereby making a God in our own image. The God of the Bible is marvelous and transcendent without beginning, without end, rightly called in Judaism the Ein self, the infinite one, and according to the scriptures, clearly complex in his unity. Will we accept the biblical witness or will we try to create a God based on our own limitations and perceptions? In the Old Testament, the Lord stated categorically that he would share his glory with no one. As written in Isaiah 42:8. I am the Lord, that is my name, my glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Yet we see in the New Testament, Revelation 5, that massive glory and honor are given to the Son. As Revelation records, and the elders fell down and worshiped. Either God has gone back on his word, and another created being is sharing in his unique honor and glory, or the Son is one with the Father, equally God. And note here that all creation worships the lamb, meaning that he himself is not created. Having interacted with religious Jews for the last 47 years, I can assure you that if the Son did not share in the divine nature, to worship him like this would be blasphemous. That indeed would be detracting from the worship of the only God and engaging in some form of idolatry. This is not like one candle lighting another candle without the first candle losing its light. This is like the second candle becoming predominant. In this case, having millions of people praising and glorifying Jesus and to this day around the world, often without mention of the Father. If the Son is not God, then he has taken glory from the Father. What makes this all the more interesting is that throughout Isaiah 40 through 48, God repeatedly says of himself I am or I am he translated into Greek as ego eimi. Yet that is the very language Jesus uses of himself in John most decisively in John 8:58, truly truly I say to you before Abraham was I am. Not I was, but I am. So not only does Jesus share in the Father's glory, but he identifies himself with the eternal God, saying, I am, or I am he, also declaring his eternal preexistence. And just as the Lord says in Isaiah 48, 12, I am he, I am the first, and I am the last, so also in the book of Revelation, both the Father and Son are called the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. So Revelation 21, 6, speaking of the Father who says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Then Revelation 22:13, 13 where Jesus says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Also see Revelation 1:8. He is clearly and unequivocally identifying himself with Yahweh. No created being could utter such words. Only the eternal God could say, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end, the Son is the eternal God? That's why in the Old Testament Yahweh's words remain forever, Isaiah 40. But in the New Testament, it is Jesus' words that will remain forever, Matthew 24. The Lord declared in Isaiah 43:11, "I, I am the Lord, and beside me there is no savior." Yet throughout the New Testament, Jesus is hailed as our savior. Either He's one with God, or there's more than one true savior. Paul leaves us no doubt. Referring to, quote, our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, in Titus 2.13. That's the most obvious and clear sense of the Greek. Jesus is our great God and Savior. We also learn from the same section in Isaiah that when Yahweh created the universe, he did it alone. As written in Isaiah 44.24, I am the Lord who made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by myself. Yet the New Testament tells us explicitly that the Son was involved in creation. In John 1.1, uh, John uses the language of Genesis 1.1 in the Septuagint, saying that the word was in the beginning, N-R-K, just like in the beginning God created, Genesis 1.1 and explaining that what God was, the word was. And he continues, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of man. And John tells us it is this preexistent word, this word through which all things were created, which became flesh and dwelt among us, John 1.14. That's why John the baptizer explained that Jesus ranks before me because he was before me, John 1. That's why Jesus said he was from above, that he came down from heaven, that he came from God and was returning to God. John 3, John 6, John 8, John 13. That's why Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 8:6: yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom all things from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. Even more emphatically, he wrote, Colossians 1, for by him, speaking of the Son, all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, with the thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him, And he is before all things, and in him, all things hold together. The text is clear. The Son is eternal. The Son is uncreated. All things were created through him and for him. You you really have to engage in a hopeless series of exegetical gymnastics to deny the plain sense of these words. And remember, in Isaiah... Yahweh said no one was with him when he created the universe. Yet these texts say he created all things through his son. That can only mean one thing. The father and son are one God. And that's why Jesus explained that it was his father's will, John 5, that all may honor the son just as they honor the father. There are other texts which explicitly point to the son's eternal preexistence. In John 17, 5, Jesus prays to the Father, And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Once again, the text is clear. John also tells us in chapter 12 that when Isaiah saw the Lord's glory, meaning Yahweh in his glory in Isaiah 6, it was the Son of God he saw the one who suffers and dies in Isaiah 53. Isaiah saw the Son of God and the Son was called Yahweh. That's why Paul tells us explicitly in Philippians 2 that Jesus existed in the form of God, yet emptied himself and became a servant, dying for us. And that's why Paul uses a text speaking of Yahweh in Isaiah 45, 23, where God swears that every knee will bow to him and every tongue swear to him, and applies the verse to Jesus, saying that every knee will bow to him, and every tongue confess that he is Lord. If the Son is not deity, that's blasphemous, and it cannot possibly be to the glory of the Father. Just think if the verse were referred to an angel rather than Yahweh, it's unimaginable. Note also that Paul uses the example of Jesus in Philippians as an example of humility. He didn't take what rightly belonged to him, namely the privileges of deity, but rather emptied himself on our behalf. He who was eternally God came to earth as a servant to die for us. That's why Jesus said that he often longed to have mercy on Jerusalem, but it was not willing. Matthew 23. He was the one wooing his people throughout Old Testament times. That's why Hebrews 1.8 eight. Quoting from Psalm 45.7, says to the Son, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Yes, the Son is God and has an eternal throne. And no one in the New Testament is designated like this other than Almighty God himself. By the way, the plain sense of the Hebrew and Greek is apparent, and I'll gladly get into that if there's any debating of the translation. But not only so, Hebrews continues, quoting from Psalm 102, a psalm about Yahweh, the creator of the universe. Hebrews continues, quoting from Psalm 102, and applying these words to the Son. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe. You'll roll them up like a garment. They'll be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. The son is the eternal creator, the one who always was and always will be. That's what scripture states. We don't need to play games with this text and try to make it say something it's not saying. The text clearly and indisputably speaks of the Lord creating the heavens and the earth, which will ultimately wear out. But he, the eternal Lord, will remain the same. Yet Hebrews applies this to the sun, and Psalm 102 makes frequent reference to Yahweh, yet the psalm is referred to the sun in Hebrews 1. Not only so, but the Greek speaks of the Lord creating the universe in the beginning, arkos. There's no denying the plain truth of these words. And Hebrews makes the consistent argument that the sun is greater than the angels, yet in first century Judaism, the very context of these words, there is no one higher than the angels than God himself. That's why Isaiah said in 9.6 that one of the Messiah's titles would be Mighty God. Yet it's Yahweh in Isaiah 10.21 who's called Mighty God. That's why Thomas said to the risen Jesus, my Lord and my God. The text is totally clear. And that's why Paul wrote in Colossians 2.9 that the whole fullness of deity dwelt in bodily form in Jesus. Peter is clear as well, writing in 2 Peter 1.1, about the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And it's very likely that Paul speaks of Jesus as God in Romans 9.5. Well, it's most likely that in 1 John 5.20, John states that Jesus Christ is the true God. That's why Jesus could say that the Father was in him, and he in the Father, John 14. That's why Paul identifies the Spirit of God with the Spirit of Christ in Romans 8. That's why Paul could pray to the father and son together in 1 Thessalonians 3.13, saying, now may our God and father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you, and he uses a singular verb in the Greek for the father and Jesus. And why else would Paul include Jesus in a prayer to the father, let alone pray to the father and son using a singular verb in the Greek, unless they're one? 2 Thessalonians 2, Paul puts Jesus first, Uses the singular verb again. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ Himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts. That's why prayer is offered directly to the Son in the New Testament. Stephen praised Him in Acts seven. Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. We're taught to pray Maranatha, which in Aramaic means Our Lord come. And John calls out to Him in Revelation twenty-two. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. Jesus even told us to ask him for anything and he'd do it in John 14. That's why in Revelation 22, we read that the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the New Jerusalem and his servants will worship him. Not them, but him. God and the Lamb, one divine being and one throne. That's why in Revelation 22, we read that the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the New Jerusalem and his servants will worship him. Not them, but him. God and the Lamb, one divine being, and in the end, one throne not two, they will see his face, not their faces, and his name, not their names, will be on their foreheads. To review, there's no question whatever that the Son is eternal, preexistent, and fully divine, the one through whom all things were created, and the one who is worthy to receive praise, honor, and glory, and to whom prayer can be directed. That's why he's called God in a number of texts, and that's why we worship him as God, one with his Father. And that's why when Jesus returns to the earth and his feet touch the Mount of Olives, as promised in Acts 1.11, Zechariah tells us that it will be Yahweh's feet that touch down, Zechariah 14. And that's why we baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. A glorified man has no place between the Father and the Spirit. In fact, as we look at the scriptural evidence, we see that lying to the Spirit is lying to God, Acts 5, that the Spirit can be grieved, Isaiah 63, Ephesians 4, That the Spirit teaches, guides, speaks, intercedes, appoints leaders, and bears witness, many scriptures for all of that. That the Spirit is manifest through wisdom and knowledge, and that the Spirit is eternal. The Spirit is also God. That's why Paul could speak of the love of the Spirit, and that's why Paul could invoke this benediction, The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. 2 Corinthians 13, and note, you have fellowship with a person, not with a thing. That's why Christians concluded that God was triune, one God, made known to us as Father, Son, and Spirit. In the New Testament, the Father is primarily known as God, the Son is primarily known as Lord, and the Spirit is given various titles to explain his work and mission, although he's sometimes called Lord too, as in 2 Corinthians 3. That's why Jesus could say things like this in John 15, 26. But when the helper comes, whom I'll send to you from the Father, the spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me. And that's why blasphemy against the spirit, not against an impersonal force, but against God himself, was a damnable sin. You were damned for sinning against a divine someone, not just a powerful something. And it's only when we understand God's triunity that we can understand how people saw God in the Old Testament Yet the Bible says no one's ever seen God. The Father remains hidden. It is the Son who makes him known. That's why Jesus could say, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And that's why he could say, all things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father or who the Father is except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. You cannot say that God created the world through a glorified man or that a glorified man, Hebrews 1, is the radiance of God's glory and the exact expression of his nature. That's why Jacob in Genesis 48 described God as the God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day, the angel who redeemed me from all harm. Yes, Jacob accredited the one true God with the angel who redeemed him. This was his way of describing the pre-exi- pre-existent son who appeared sometimes in the Old Testament as the angel of the Lord. Jacob encountered him too. And just as Paul prayed to Jesus and the father as one using a singular verb, so also here Jacob appeals to God and his redeeming angel, one being in the singular as well. As a Jewish follower of Jesus, there's always been pressure on me to deny what scripture plainly teaches, namely that Jesus the Son is eternal deity and that God's unity is complex. But because the word is so clear on this, I could not and would not yield to this pressure. And by the way, there's far more evidence I could bring from the Old Testament to support this, time doesn't permit. So I I urge each of you to fall down at the feet of the glorious Son and worship him as God. This will please the Father who sent his son to be the savior of the world and who continues to work among us by his spirit. And after Paul laid out God's extraordinary plan to save both Jews and Gentiles in Romans 9 through 11, he wrote these incredible words from the Old Testament as well. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given him a gift to to him that might be repaid For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. So let's stop trying to put the infinite and eternal God into the tiny box of our limited minds as if we ourselves could figure out or define him or reduce him to a mathematical formula. And let's instead worship our triune God with reverence and awe. That is humility and that is wisdom. Thank you.
1: Thank you for both of your presentations. It is now time to enter the rebuttal stage. Each participant will have 12 minutes of rebuttal, and this is where you guys need to all uh, take good notes. If they fail to say something that you want them to say, you will have opportunity in the question and answer time to uh, raise that question yourself. So uh, Dr. Tuggy, 12 minutes.
2: All right, that's going to be tough to address. He machine got down a lot of verses there. Um, but I'll address some of them. We can talk more more of them in discussion. Uh, Like many, Dr. Brown attempts to derive some sort of Trinity theory from the Bible. Uh, Dr. Brown is an unusual Trinitarian. He habitually avoids traditionally required language about God being three persons in one essence. He substitutes his own novel formulations that in some way the Lord's unity is complex or that God is complex in his unity. I agree that God is complex in his unity, but I'm a Unitarian Christian. In my view, God is good and God is wise. That is a sort of complexity in the one God. He has many different praiseworthy qualities. But this just shows that Dr. Brown's vague formulations do not clearly express any traditional Trinity doctrine. He sets the bar way too low to succeed in his project. And if he's going to stand by that traditional language that the Father and Son are two persons in the one God, I think he needs to tell us what he means by persons. I think I understand what he means. I've read a lot of his work and heard a lot of his presentations. And so I'll tell you now uh, about all the Jesus in the Old Testament stuff. We can talk about that maybe more later, but as the eminent scholar James Dunn says, quote, there is no evidence that any New Testament writer thought of Jesus as actually present in Israel's past, either as the angel of the Lord or as the Lord himself. And quote, I would add that they could not have thought this because they all held that Jesus was a real man, a literal descendant of David, who therefore came to exist in part and indirectly because of David, and David lived after the time of Moses. As it stands, Dr. Brown's multi-personal God or his Trinity is saddled with a problem common to some other Trinitarian and modalist theologies. As I've discussed in my book, What is the Trinity and Elsewhere?, Some Trinitarians interpret these three persons not as selves, not as intelligent agents, but rather as something like modes, personalities, or manifestations of the one divine self. In other words, manifestations of God. They think of God as one person. In other words, this one God lives his life in three ways at once, as Father, as Son, and as Spirit. In contrast, other Trinitarians Think of these persons as selves, three intelligent agents who enjoy wonderful interpersonal relationships and who love one another and cooperate with one another. For them, the Trinity is literally a they and not a he. And sometimes they, they uh, get poetic about uh, an eternal dance of three uh, perfect friends or something like that. Now, it seems to me that Dr. Brown is on the one-self team, that he really thinks that God is a single self. If this is his theory, he's free to correct me, then that theory goes hard against the grain of the New Testament. These authors teach many things about the Son of God and his God, which logically require that they are two different selves. They are, respectively, Son, Father, Son of God, God, Submitter, Superior, Revealer of God, the God Revealed, Prayer, Prayee. Obedient master, or sorry, obedient servant and master. Mediator and high priest, and then the God who's mediated too. Prophet versus the God who sent the prophet. Messiah, anointed one versus the God who anointed him. Chosen king of the chosen people versus the one who chose both the people and their king. Empoweree, empowerer, the one sent, the sender. Dead man at one time, raiser of that dead man. Exaltee exalter, earthly teacher of divine wisdom and the source of that wisdom, sacrifice and sacrificer, recipient of sacrifice. None of these pairs of roles make sense unless Jesus and God are two different selves. These person-to-person or self-to-self relations can't be pulled off by personalities or modes of a single self like happy Trump and angry Trump or Michael the dad and Michael the teacher. The solution is clear. Both the Old and New Testaments apply the term Father to the one God. He is a single, mighty self, and he has revealed himself most fully to us in these last days, Hebrews 1 says, through his unique Son. God and his Son are respectively a God and a very special man. Let's side with the New Testament here and let go of contrary speculations. Now, the passages that he threw out there all too quickly Uh, he's cherry-picking ones that he thinks that are really obvious, kind of slam-dunk, and they focus on pre-existence. Pre-existence really isn't to the point, and I'll tell you why. The way that he's reading John 1, the way way that he's reading uh, 1 Corinthians 8, the way he's reading Colossians 1, these are the descendants of the Logos theorists of the late 100s and on in church history. The Lagos theorists uh, were influenced by Plato, the philosopher, who they treated kind of like a a sage almost, not just an intellectual. And in Plato's Timaeus, he says that uh, the transcendent being could not directly interact with the material world. I don't know why that's impossible, but anyway, it is impossible. And so in order to bring about the material world, the transcendent source has to first bring about some in-between being that's neither created nor uncreated, And only through this in-between being can he interact with creation. Some of these early uh, theologians were impressed by this. And then they looked at John 1 and they said, aha, that must be the logos Logos of John 1. And uh, a lot of ordinary Christians said, what? We only believe in one God, and now you're talking about two gods. And they literally did. They talked about a greater and a lesser God or a first God and a second God. And they said that the first God created through the second and lesser God. And uh, common Christians commonly rejected this. They were not impressed by this theory. They said, look, uh, the Bible says God created alone. Now, uh, his idea in reading these passages is that there's an ultimate creator, and then there's like a hands-on creator. And it's this pre-human son, this eternal divine person, uh, that supposedly is the hands-on creator. Okay, but look, for God to be creator is for God to be the ultimate source of all else. And the in-between guy isn't that. So even on this theory, you've got not exactly a creator in the sense that God is creator. You've got this kind of instrument guy in there. And uh, that's not the same thing. Um, John 1 uh, is a lot that could be said about that. The most important thing to see about John 1 is that it never says that the word, the logos, is Jesus. It, ta- it starts off talking about God's eternal word that's with him and through which he created all things. You're supposed to now think of Lady Wisdom in Proverbs chapter 8, who's with God while he's creating. Um, and then, you know, God's word is the light of the world and so on. It comes to his own, which is, is uh, the, the people of Israel and gets rejected. And now, finally, in these last days, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And then what, what he's saying is that God's eternal word is revealed to us through this man. And there's plenty of precedent in intertestamental literature in particular for what you could call a non-literal uh, incarnation. So God's uh, wisdom leaping down from heaven like a warrior, uh, God's Torah becoming in on earth, and things like this. And it's actually very understandable that way. Uh, Colossians 1, I think, is about what Paul calls Jesus' new creation, Notice it doesn't say that Jesus created the heavens and the earth, which is the normal way that you'd express creation in one sentence. It says he created all things in the heavens and in the earth, and then it tells you what those things are. And it looks like it's kind of reordering the unseen and the seen powers, um, the powers in the church and the powers uh, in the angelic realm. And it's pretty clear that the whole context there is in Jesus' exalted uh, state post-resurrection. Um, My Lord and my God, in chapter 20, Uh, look, this doesn't really, um, it's not not trouble for my view either way, because as we know, beings other than God can be called God, as is seen in Hebrews 1, quoting the Psalm. And so maybe Thomas is calling Jesus his God, but let's read the rest of the chapter, shall we? Because uh, John then tells you his main thesis, which is that Jesus is the Son of God, the Messiah. And that's very surprising if his real point is that Jesus is God, okay? And also you have to connect it with what went earlier in John. Jesus says, if you've seen me, if you've seen the Father, and he says the Father's working through him and so on. And yeah, now Thomas finally gets it. He realizes that God is in Christ, that they are one and that they're about the same business and that God truly is working through him. I think it's a double confession, like the early church did, of the one God Oh, and also the one Lord, as you see in 1 Corinthians 8. Now, what about this, I don't, I'm not going to give my glory to any other? Well, notice what part of that chapter says. My glory I give to no other, this is Isaiah 42, 8, nor my praise to idols. Right. He's not going to share his glory with any of the other alleged deities, okay? But we know that God gives his glory to another. It, that's the exact thing that happens in Revelation 5, it's the exact thing that happens to the one like a son of man in Daniel 7. To him was given dominion and glory and kingship. Jesus thanks God uh, in advance for the predestined glory that he's about to get, John 17, 22, He says, the glory that you have given me, I have given them. So yes, God does share his glory. He shares it with Jesus. Dr. Brown, um, I think, is making a popular assumption And um, it's not something that can be assumed. It's not a biblical teaching, and it's not self-evident, like one plus one is two, so it's not something that could be assumed in any argument. As far as I can tell, there's, there's nothing that can be said for it other than it fits with traditional Catholic and Protestant theorizing. This is the thesis that you can only worship someone if they have a divine nature. No, it doesn't say that anywhere. In the Old Testament, God says, only worship me. who are the potential worshipees there? God, the God of Israel, and the gods of the nations. Yeah, out of those, only worship God. Now, in the New Testament, the context is different. He's now brought his son onto the scene. That that old rule is still in force. You're not supposed to worship the alleged gods of the nations, right? But this is precisely what it means to say that he exalted his son. To put him in that exalted position is to imply that we all have to worship him. And that is the only reason cited for worshiping Jesus in the New Testament. Uh, however you interpret Philippians 2, I wish we had more time to discuss that. It's therefore uh, he, he's worshiped because of his exaltation. Also, look at the reasons cited for worshiping Jesus in Revelation 5. Contrast them with the reasons cited for worshiping God in Revelation chapter 4. Okay, my time is up. Thank you.
3: All right, uh, I must say I'm quite disappointed in the rebuttal time. I was accused of machine gunning verses and then rather than engaging the verses, most of the time eight, nine minutes was spent just telling me why I was wrong. That's a disappointment. As for the engaging of the verses, oh boy, that's a real disappointment. To say that Colossians 1 is speaking of a new creation when the text says, that all things were created by him and he exists before everything and in him all things hold together, wow. And to dismiss a mountain of evidence of the Old Testament, which Dr. Tuggy surely knows is there, by quoting a scholar, James Dunn, who says, no New Testament writer thought of Jesus being there or the son being there in the Old Testament. Let's engage the text. But how, how about that statement from Dr. Dunn? What do we do with it? 1 Corinthians 10, the rock that was with the children of Israel in the wilderness, Paul says, was Christ. Matthew 23, Jesus, the one through the Old Testament who is constantly trying to woo his people. John 12, that when Isaiah saw the Son, he saw Yahweh, the Son, in Isaiah 6. And that's the one who suffers and dies for us in Isaiah 53. Of course the New Testament writers speak of the Son being present in the Old Testament. The idea that there's any connection here with Catholic theology, to me, is a complete distraction from the issues here. And this idea that it's fourth century tradition, let's just demolish that right now. Polycarp, a disciple of John, died in 155, wrote about our Lord and God, Jesus Christ. Ignatius, another disciple of John, who died in 117. Jesus Christ, our God. Our God, Jesus the Christ, when God appeared in human form to bring the newness of eternal life, the eternal, the invisible, who for our sake became invisible, the intangible, the unsuffering, who for our sake suffered. These were the the disciples of John. They understood. Justin Martyr died in 165, Christ being Lord and God, the Son of God. Christ is called both God and Lord of hosts, deserving to be worshiped as God and as Christ and on and on. He was God, son of the only unbegotten, unutterable God. Melito of Cyrus died 180. It says, because they slew God, one of his writings. Irenaeus of Lyon, 130, the one, uh, excuse me, died in 202. He himself is in his own right beyond all men who ever live, God and Lord and king eternal and the incarnate word. Christ Jesus is our Lord and God and savior and king. Clement of Alexandria died 215, he alone being both God and man. Tertullian died in 225, Christ is also God. Hippolytus died in 235, the Logos is God being the substance of God, God the word came down from heaven. Origen died 254, was incarnate although God. And Pliny the Younger, Roman governor, between 111 and 113, says that it was the custom of the Christians to sing a hymn to Christ as a God. What Dr. Tuggy ends up with his multiple gods. No problem for Thomas to say to Jesus, my Lord and my God, but he didn't mean God the same way. Hebrews 1 speaks explicitly of the Son as God, but that's, he's not the same as that God. Only problem is that Hebrews 1 goes on to quote a psalm about Yahweh, the Creator, in Psalm 102, and refers that to the son. He who is endless, he who was there at the beginning. So Dr. Tuggy now has multiple gods, and he worships a man as God, and has no problem with that. I worship God and God alone. To worship anyone else the way God is worshiped is idolatrous. That's not just speculation, that's scripture. And the idea that billions of people could give praise and honor and glory to the Lamb, and that doesn't take away from the Father's glory alone, that's one of the biggest issues my Jewish friends have, and those who know Jewish literature quite well. That's one of their biggest issues because they don't recognize Jesus as God. They feel our worship of him is idolatrous. Uh, what about John 17:3, where Jesus refers to the Father as the only true God? Well, remember, John 1.1 has told us that the Word was God. As many Greek scholars say, the best way to understand it, what the Word was, God was. And it doesn't say what Dr. Tuggy says. In John 1.14, remember he said the Word, it never says that the Word is Jesus. Quite remarkable statement. What does it say in John 1.14? Not what Dr. Tuggy said, that the Word was revealed through him, but rather the Word became flesh. That's the way it's written. The eternal Son, the Word, became flesh. And that's why he worships his Father. That's why he prays to his Father. That's why he has a Father. That's why he looks to the Father, because he took on flesh. The man, Christ Jesus, prays to his Father. In John 10, he said that he's one with the Father. And in John 14, he said the Father's in him, and he's in the Father. So what is it when he says to the Father that you're the only true God? Well, he is praying to his Father, who is the only true God. It doesn't say that he's not. It doesn't say the Son is not. If you want to use logic like that, let's go to Jude verse 4 where it says that Jesus is our only Master and Lord. Well, if that's the same logic, then the Father is not our Master and the Father is not our Lord. So if you're going to try to use that argument, it absolutely defeats itself. Uh, We were told that Jesus never teaches that God is a trinity. Well, verses like John 15, 26, which I read, and by the way, I intentionally did not machine-gun verses. I could have quoted scores and scores and scores more verses. Rather, I explained and quoted verses, and I did my best to lay out the meaning of them as well. John 15, 26, when he speaks of the Father, and then the Son, and the Spirit, and each one having its specific role, you say, well, why doesn't the Bible tell us that we should worship the Spirit? Well, it does say blasphemy against the Spirit is the one unforgivable sin. That's pretty weighty. It does speak of the eternal spirit in Hebrews the ninth chapter. I've shown you that lying to God is lying to the spirit, that the spirit speaks and acts and has all these other divine attributes. But the whole role of the spirit is to point people to Jesus and then Jesus points to the father. So that's the Spirit is doing his work. The fact that we're not called explicitly to worship the Spirit separately is because the Spirit is doing his work to point everyone to Jesus, who then glorifies the Father. And doesn't Paul use Trinitarian formulas by speaking of God, Jesus, Spirit, and invoking all of them in a benediction? And don't we see God's complex unity when Paul prays to Father and Son together using a singular verb that breaks with grammar? When we're told, where is New Testament controversy about the deity of the Son? Well, the Gospels record these things. The Gospels speak of Jewish leaders getting upset because Jesus is making himself equal with God. But we don't have any first century literature outside of what's in the New Testament. And the disciples of the apostles plainly speak about Jesus as God. And we know that there's all kinds of controversy that exists about that for centuries because of that very thing. Oh, let's just see here. Uh, We're told all four Gospels state that Jesus is the Messiah, and you simply have to believe that. Well, it's also said that he's the Son of God, and that Sonship is given definition elsewhere, not just a glorified man. And I do need to clarify from Dr. Tuggy if he believes that the Son did not come into existence until he was conceived in his mother's womb, or if he believes he's pre existent I wasn't clear from his presentation. But Jesus says plainly in John 8 that he came from above, And unless you believe I am he, you will not have eternal life. What does he mean by that? We've seen the I am, I am he statements where he absolutely connects himself with the Father, with Yahweh of the Old Testament. We are are told that Jesus is a creature, but claims that we now worship God through a creature. Friends, that is idolatrous. If we're not worshiping the one true God, if our loyalty and love is given to someone else, we are called on to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. If that gets divided between God and somebody else, it's a divided heart, it is idolatrous. Also, if, if we take apart this statement, you can only worship someone who has a divine nature. He denies this. Dr. Tuggy denies this and finds it to be an unscriptural concept. So not only does Dr. Tuggy have several gods, he's got God the creator, and then he's got God, he acknowledges seven, eight times in the New Testament, the son referred to as God, so we've got this other God who's also called our Savior, who's also called our Lord, who's also worshipped in the exact same way that God is worshipped. Remember John 5, that all men honor the Son as they honor the Father. So now you have two different gods, one of whom is the creator, one is created, and they're both worshipped equally. That's idolatrous. That's polytheism. All I want to do is hold to biblical monotheism. Uh, my, my roots go back to the Bible and to a Jewish heart not to some later traditions, and I'm I'm not here to dispute creeds. If Dr. Tuggy wants to dispute that with a creedal scholar, great, that's not my issue. My only issue is what Scripture says. Let's also recognize that the verses speaking of Jesus as God, where he's referred to as our God and Savior, You you cannot separate those who say, well, that's just like Elohim could be used of an earthly judge in the Old Testament, something like that. No, you have no such usage anywhere in the New Testament. When he's referred to as God, it's in the sense of Savior, Lord, Redeemer, Deliverer. 1 Corinthians 8 says, for us there's one God, the Father, and one Lord, Jesus. You say, well, then obviously Jesus is not God. Well, by that same logic, then the Father is not Lord. Now, what Paul does in 1 Corinthians 1, and many scholars recognize this, top New Testament scholars, is that he takes the Shema, the words of Deuteronomy 6, hero Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. He takes those words, and he now breaks them down, applying to father and son right there. So we can debate the logic of this. You know, I've got printouts where, where Dr. Tuggy has a syllogism, and others rebut the syllogism, and back and forth. I didn't come to do that. That's not my field. Nor did I come to defend church statements. I came jealous for the honor of the eternal son, jealous for the one who came down to earth and died for us. I came jealous for a full revelation of the love of God, who demonstrates his great heart for us, not by sending a glorified man to die for us, but by giving of his very self, his own son, his own unique son, coming into this world. I'm jealous for the testimony of Scripture. And those who have held the different views, I urge you tonight, step back and reconsider the witness of the Word. Thank you. Okay.
1: We're now going to go into a cross-examination stage if our two debaters will come up to the podium. We're going to have us for seven minutes. Dr. Tuggy will... Uh, cross-examine Dr. Brown, and then for seven minutes, Dr. Brown will cross-examine Dr. Tug- Tuggy. And then they'll do it another time, and after that, we're going to have some closing statements. Dr. Tuggy, you're first.
2: So, Dr. Brown, I guess I have 30 seconds to ask you a question. Um, maybe you could help us out with this a little bit, just to understand your views. Uh, if you could just fill in the blank in this sentence. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are three fill-in-the-blank in God.
3: It's not something that Scripture exactly defines. So that's more of a creedal statement. Mm -hmm. I would rather just say what Scripture says, that the Father, Son, and Spirit are God, and that's how God revealed himself to us. Some say persons, but that's using human language to describe God. Mm -hmm. To say it's three aspects of the same God, again, we're limited by human language in describing God. I'd rather use New Testament language, that the Father, Son, and Spirit Mm -hmm. are all eternal God.
2: Mm Mm-hmm. Okay, so you're just saying they're all God?
3: Mm hmm. Just okay. using biblical language, that's all.
2: Um, did I understand you to say that you think Jesus and the Father are the same God?
3: That the Father and Son are one God, yes. Okay, so, so God, the same God, God can be used, for example, to speak of Father, Son, and Spirit. Yeah. God can be used to speak of Father, Son, or Spirit because all three are God. So God can refer to God in his triunity or God can refer to the Father, Son, and Spirit, all are equally God. Yep. Right. Again, so, just trying to use Biblical language. That's, that's all I'm good at.
2: Right, so you would agree that, let's say, uh, a minute after Jesus breathed his last on the cross, Jesus was dead? And would you agree at
3: that moment that the Father was alive? The Father was always alive. And the Son was always alive, but the human body of, of Jesus died. Okay.
2: So, but Jesus. the eternal
3: Son. So, when we speak mm-hmm. of Jesus, we're speaking of the one who is both God and man, who is fully God and fully man. So, the man died; the Spirit never died; the, the, the Son never died.
2: Okay. So there's I, I a man. Think, I mean, I so think there's that's a pretty, man. I'm sorry. I think
3: that's pretty self-evident in Scripture. In other words, you don't, you don't crucify a Spirit. Uh, so Jesus, again, we we believe that Jesus is fully man, the man Christ Jesus. So he was born. As a baby, he didn't make believe that he was crawling or make believe he was learning to all. He was fully man. And that's, that's what Philippians 2 is telling us plainly. He existed in the form of God. And this is an example of humility for us, right? He existed in the form of God, but he emptied himself. He, he stripped himself of his divine privileges and came down to earth as a servant. Fully man, suffered as a man, died as a man, rose as a man, and also always the Son of God.
2: Right. So you just said that the body died on the cross, which I'm not sh- I don't know what it is for a body to die, other than if it's just the same thing as a man to die. Then you said a man died on the cross. It sounded like you also think there's this other self there, the eternal Son. Do you have two sons? Do you have a man? And do you also have this eternal spirit?
3: No. One God. One, one, one man. I'm not, I'm, I'm, I don't think I follow the question. But to, to be clear... To be clear,
2: you said that a man when Jesus died. hangs on the mm-hmm. cross,
3: he says, Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. Right. So I'm assuming you believe that he had a spirit. He wasn't just a physical being only. He had a spirit, right? Yes,
2: I do assume that. Mm-hmm. Right,
3: and the spirit didn't die, right? Right. Oh, okay.
2: But, you, but Dr. Brown, you said that the Father and the Son are the same God, and you, at one time, you've got that same one God being dead are, and alive. And that's just nonsense. You can't be dead no, and not I dead at the same why? time.
3: I think because it would be much, much better if you didn't put words in my mouth, I never said the son died. I, never, I said the son didn't die, and now you say right. I said he did die. So I don't find that helpful. I mean, I think we get better progress if you quote me accurately rather than say things I didn't say. Yeah, just, there's only one son
2: simple. in the New Testament, and that guy died. Uh, nothing could be clearer in the New Testament than So that. did
3: his spirit die? Um, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. What well, this is my question, okay. You can
2: ask me that in a minute.
3: All right, great. Um, Everyone remember the question, though.
2: Yeah, okay, so it's not clear to me at all that you're a Trinitarian rather than just a modalist who just simply collapses uh, the Son and, and the Father into just kind of different manifestations of the same being. Not, What's the difference seen. between your view and modalism?
3: God is eternally Father, Son, and Spirit. Oh, it's, it's just that, that it's that he, eternal? God is eternally yeah. Father, Son, and Spirit. Nothing modalistic in anything ever wrote, as you know.
2: Yeah, that's, I mean, some theologians won't call that modalism, but it is. Um, all right, so
3: we agree. I'm not a modalist.
2: Yeah. Do you? Um, Great. You 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 threw out a bunch of uh, not not as they define it. Um, you threw out a bunch of uh, little quotes from uh, early uh, church fathers. Do you think any of these ever mention a triune God? Your quotes were just calling Jesus God. Mm-hmm. It's not that's the same all. I, thing. That's
3: all I focused on. They use language which contributes to Trinitarian thought. In other words, I, I, I'm really unconcerned. Mm-hmm with what term we actually put on it. In, in other words, if someone insists on using Trinitarian terminology, that's fine. But that's never been my battle, and just as a Jewish believer, I've always just gone back to Scripture and presented what Scripture said. My point was to demolish your argument that, that you mentioned right out of the gate that this is Catholic tradition. So, so these, what's very clear, is that the, the one that these fathers spoke of, the disciples of the apostles, absolutely rejected your position. If they were here, they would have been shouting out loud, no, 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 that is not what we believe, not what yeah. we held to.
2: Yeah, they were Logos theorists. They thought that uh, there was a second God. And when they called Jesus God, they were not collapsing into the same God as the Father. They're very clear that they think that the one true God is the Father. Right. I have a presentation on this. It's called The Lost History of Unitarian Theology.
3: Yeah, but in any case, though, to, to repeat, they spoke of the eternal, invisible uncreated one coming down. That's, that's the one God. That's not being a logos theorist. And the fact is that they didn't believe in two gods. You have no problem believing in two gods. They were monotheists. So that, that's a big difference there.
2: I hope you ask me about that if I believe in two gods. Um, Dr. Brown, where do you see in the New Testament uh, as a reason cited for worshiping Jesus, that he's divine or that he's God?
3: Well, when explicitly he
2: says, stated, like, this is why we worship him.
3: Right, well, again, the focus is on what he did for us, and therefore he's worshipped for that reason. Right. However, we, we don't have many, many other verses saying, worship God for these reasons. Mm-hmm. So uh, do, we, do we not worship him because he's holy? Do we not worship him because of, no. So there's specific statements, but other statements explicitly say that everything was created through him, that before Abraham was, he, uh, he is, etc. So that's sufficient in that regard. I guess right. we switch roles now. Okay. So, I hope you're enjoying this as much as we are. Okay. So, so let's, let's revisit Hebrews 1. I, I've read some of your explanations on this. Great. When you say, it says of the Son, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. What gives you the idea that that's a different God than Yahweh?
2: Because it just said, just before that, that God, your God, has exalted you. So clearly, the word God is being used in two senses. We have to distinguish two gods from two who are being called God, okay? You know better than I do that in Old Testament, uh, they would sometimes refer to the king of Israel as God. No. Right? Your throne, O God. Um, no, no, that, that's God, your God, has exalted you.
3: Right, so that one example is when mm-hmm. he's the Messiah, that's incarnate. They did not freely speak of the king as God, God forbid.
2: You don't think the original context of that was like a coronation-type psalm? Coronation
3: psalm, right, but it, mm-hmm. it, it is going beyond the norm, so you, you realize there's more to it. But if, yeah, So, so you have no problem, prophetic. you don't find it confusing to say that there's God, the God, and then in the next verse you can speak of God, another God, and you worship that God, but he's not really God. That's not confusing.
2: Yeah, let me, let me uh, explain this at a little bit more length, okay? In the New Testament, there's, a, there's unequivocally one God, and we are told repeatedly who that is. It's the Father, it's not the Son. Now, what you're saying is uh, there can only be one called God, not in the view of Old Testament readers, which all the New Testament writers are. They know that sometimes another being can be referred to as, as Elohim in Hebrew. And it's no um, problem to... Re- to re- now, you say there's one God and one Lord... Yes, uh, as a matter of fact, the term Lord has become more ambiguous in the New Testament because based on Psalm one ten one, the Lord says to my Lord, a term used for humans, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. So now Lord, in some contexts, it can be the proper name of God, like mm-hmm. they substituted it for the name of God. Right. In other contexts, it's clearly Jesus, and it's not their way of hinting that Jesus is the Lord himself, it's this new usage. God has made him both Lord and Christ.
3: You don't have any problem saying that there's two gods, that, that one is called God and another is called God, and, and we worship both, but that's not confusing. You just a yes or no would suffice there. They're both called God, they're both worshipped as God. I don't say God. there's
2: two gods, I say there's one God. But they're I both say, called God, I say and the they're term both God, God, God. Very, very rarely in the New Testament the term God is ambiguous. <sighs> The term Lord is much more ambiguous, and this is why, on some occasions, New Testament authors will further specify which Lord they mean. They will say the Lord God, or they will say the Lord Jesus, the Lord Jesus Christ, etc. They're doing that because they realize there could be confusion about who they're mentioning. Right, and that's why they're They're generally our, very clear right. about separating the our two. Our
3: God and Savior Jesus Christ is unambiguous. But Hebrews 1 goes on to quote from Psalm 102, a Yahweh psalm, that speaks of him creating in the beginning, creating the universe in the beginning, yeah. and his days will have no end. That's Yahweh. That's, that's not this other God that you're referring to. That's, that's Yahweh who created the universe in the beginning and whose days have no end. That's explicitly applied to the Son in Hebrews 1.
2: Right, so Hebrews 1, we need to read it in the context of the whole book, okay? And the argument on the face of it would be really weird if there's this background assumption that Jesus is God himself or that he's fully divine, has the divine nature. If you thought those things, you wouldn't waste 30 seconds arguing that Jesus is superior to the angels. Okay, But he sets off on this long course of argument showing that Jesus is superior to the angels. I think it's clear enough uh, that the context there is of new creation. It doesn't say Jesus created the world. You need to read this in the context of the New Testament. In every single New Testament passage where it's totally uncontroversial, that it's Genesis creation that's talked about, it's the Father. For instance, when Jesus says uh, he created them male and female, he's referring to God the Father there. Okay, so creation is, whenever it's really explicitly discussed is attributed to the Father. I think this has got to be new creation. His, His whole topic here is the theme of the exalted Jesus, exalted to God's right hand. He does not confuse Jesus and God in the way that you're doing. In fact, he says that uh, to provide atonement, Jesus uh, has to be made like his brothers in all ways. Um,
3: but, but it says in the beginning... Do you have a problem created, with Paul's doctrine of new creation? Hang on, since it's, it's my turn to ask you the questions. Psalm mm-hmm. 102 is, is completely unambiguous. Mm-hmm. There's zero ambiguity in it. It's Yahweh yeah. created the universe in yes. the beginning. Yes. You're saying that's a future creation? A new creation?
2: I'm saying this is a case. And that's
3: somehow evident in Psalm 102?
2: I'm saying that this is is one of many, many cases where a New Testament author takes an Old Testament passage and says it has a second meaning or a new fulfillment in Jesus. All the famous prophecies are like this. Not like uh, this, more, not more saying that the
3: beginning is future, not uh, saying that a past the, event of creation is a future event of new creation. There's no passage yes, like that in the Bible. Uh, on the
2: face of it, if it wasn't in the context of this big argument that Jesus and his exalted state is superior to angels, you might think, well, that's got to be the original creation. Uh, but in the version that they're reading, they read it, as, which was a uh, Greek translation, they think it sounds like God is talking to someone else, and so he, he applies that to the original.
3: So he, he, mis- he got it wrong and they forgot that in the Greek that's quoted, it well, says in the beginning, you, know, you, can, you so can heap got that, it wrong.
2: You can heap that criticism on New Testament authors, but they think they have a right to give an inspired interpretation, yeah. which is not the original intention or the older interpretation.
3: So it doesn't trouble you that Dr. Tuggy is right and Hebrews got it wrong? Perhaps the better logic would be Dr. Tuggy has it wrong and Hebrews has it right? Wouldn't that be the, the, the more biblical and humble approach, sir, with all respect?
2: Dr. Brown, I'm reading Hebrews 1 in context, and I'm making uh, those two verses you're talking about, I'm making them fit in, right? It's talking about Jesus' exaltation. Let all the angels of God worship him. Well, you wouldn't have to tell the angels of God that if he was eternal deity, would you? You
3: don't have to tell them. They're they're, they're told to to worship God throughout the the Old Testament. Why are they told to worship God? Mm -hmm. Uh, It's an exhortation to do what should be done. Yeah, his, uh, his
2: assumption is that God is the creator, uh, and Jesus, he says, created the ages, which I presume is the new age and the following age, right? I've made, uh, all things are made new in Christ. This is not Tuggy's theory. This is Paul. You have a problem with Paul if you can't believe that new creation I've could got, be coming up I've got zero in Colossians, problem. in Colossians 1 and in Hebrews 1.
3: Yeah, Colossians 1 is not new creation. Back to you, sir. Okay.
2: Dr. Brown, uh, I didn't really understand uh, your arguments that were intended to address my point that uh, the word God, uh, you know, 99% of time means Father in the New Testament. Um, don't you think that's strange if these authors think that the Father and Son and Holy Spirit are all equally God?
3: Not at all. No, not strange in the least bit. In, in fact, I, I take pains, as you know, in volume two of my series on answering Jewish objections to Jesus, which, which we have here, to explain that the primary message of the New Testament is that the Father, the one true God, sent his Son into the world to die for our sins, and the, the incarnation being an extraordinary mystery. You have hints of it in the Hebrew Bible where Yahweh appears in human form, and yet we're told no one has seen him. Now, the Son comes as the radiance of God's glory into this world, so his primary role is as Lord and Savior, And the Father's primary role as God, and yet the New Testament repeatedly, more than sufficiently, tells us that he's God, tells us that he's eternal, tells us that the world was created through him, tells us that he's the first and the last. So there's no ambiguity there in the revelation. But no, the emphasis is exactly what I would expect it to be, especially from first-century Jewish authors. makes perfect sense to me. I haven't the least problem with it.
2: Okay, different uh, question. Dr. Brown, are you aware anywhere in the New Testament where an author defends his theology or his Christology by saying that it's a mystery, meaning that it's something that can barely be understood or something that can't be explained or something that appears to be incoherent?
3: Yeah, well, if I say mystery, if, if, if I've ever used the word, which I, I believe I do in, in volume two of my series, I mean it in something... A few not, times, yes. Yeah, yeah, so I mean it in, some, in terms of something awesome and overwhelming and extraordinary and inscrutable not logically contradictory or some of the words that you use. So I would just say, number one, in Romans 11, verses I quoted for that very reason, Paul, just when he looks at God's acts in redemption, is so overwhelmed, he says, oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how inscrutable are his judgments, his ways beyond finding out. So it's just his wisdom, his ways are beyond finding out. So I, and then in the New Testament, Uh, the worship that goes to God, the constant falling on one's face and saying, this holy, holy, this eternal God, I find awe, majesty, God's ways being inscrutable beyond ours, yes, expressed in the New Testament, and that's the same awe that I have when I come to God.
2: Yeah, I don't think, I mean, not understanding God's timing and God's ways isn't at all the same as pre- presenting what seems to be a self-contradictory theology, and then when someone points out that it seems to be self-contradictory, uh, to defend it as a mystery. And again, the way I point out was you said Jesus and the Father are the same God, and yet they differ at the same time. You didn't want to say that Jesus, uh, the, sorry, that you didn't want to say the Father and Son uh, differed in the sense of dying, because you didn't want to grant that the Son died. Of course he Would you grant yeah. that the Father and Son have ever differed in any way?
3: No. Not, not in terms of deity, in terms of function, role, of course, and the son comes down to this earth and the father is greater than the son. But Jesus, if we say Jesus, we're speaking of the son in human form. The son is eternal. Jesus right. did not always exist. The son always existed. But it, what I right. find interesting is you're assuming it's self-contradictory. And now, you want New Testament writers to respond to it being self-contradictory, whereas they didn't find it self-contradictory. And remember, their Bible was the Hebrew Bible. When they started, they didn't have the New Testament. And the Hebrew Bible calls the Messiah El Gibor, Mighty God, which is explicitly a title of Yahweh, in, in the very next chapter, Isaiah 9:6, 6, then Isaiah 10:21, Mighty God is the Son, and Mighty God is Yahweh. If that's not confusing, Unless the son is really mighty God, I don't know what would be. And then we have examples like Genesis 18, where Yahweh appears, and Yahweh has an extensive conversation with Abraham, and then he's accompanied by two angels. When you have that explicitly, so you you have already these theophanies or these Christophanies. You have God appearing. As I mentioned, Genesis 48, where Jacob refers to God and the angel. That redeemed him. So you already had this. It wasn't a problem. That's why these believers were so easily able to recognize uh, the Son as eternal. That being said, we have controversies in John 5 over the divine nature. Mm-hmm. They pick up stones to stone him, and they, they say, You made yourself equal with God. So whether they understood him rightly or not, you could say that it was a misunderstanding. The I fact sure is, the controversies that. existed mm-hmm. for sure.
2: Yeah, you don't want to take the unbelieving Jews' word for it in John. It's, it's, it's a hammered motif throughout the book that they keep getting it wrong. But, 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 my, but my point
3: was, why mm-hmm. did they get it wrong? He was obviously saying, in your view, they got it wrong, but mm-hmm. he was obviously saying things that made them get it wrong.
2: No, he corrected them every time. Uh, not every time. Sometimes he lets them stay in their darkness, but clear ah. enough. Like John 10, for instance. But my, one more question. Uh, do you agree with Paul that Jesus is mediator between God and man? And if so... Do you agree that the very concept of mediation requires three selves? The one, the mediator in the middle, and then at least two other parties.
3: Yeah, the man, Christ Jesus, is the one mediator between God and man. Absolutely. It doesn't say the Son, it says the man, Christ Jesus, because it's the Son as his incarnation. So you're, yeah, so, so you're so distinguishing you have,
2: the Son from Jesus? You no, no, two, no. You got two Jesuses there. Not man.
3: separating, emphasizing it's the man, Christ Jesus. If it wasn't the Son, in his incarnation, he would not be the mediator. So again, it seems to me that a lot of the problems that you have simply are not accepting the incarnation. In other words, everything, everything you said about the son makes perfect sense when we understand the incarnation, that, that the word became flesh. It doesn't say that the wisdom of the word was manifest, but the word became flesh. So the one who is the mediator between God and man Is the man Christ Jesus. It doesn't say it's just the Son, but the man Christ Jesus, the Son in human form. Yeah,
2: and God's wisdom became the Torah. You seem to not get that that can be something other than like a spirit taking on a body. Um, I don't get it because it's not written. Dr. Brown, he can't be a mediator between God and man if he's the same self as God. That's just just nonsense. That's just to say that God mediates for himself. No, if he's the same.
3: So here, actually, and I'll just finish here. You actually proved the point because you're saying that he was the mediator between man, but he's only man. And he can't be the mediator between God if he's God. No, he can be the mediator because he's God and man. So actually what you just, at all you're grimacing, you're grimacing at your own refutation of yourself there. quite a theory you got there. What just happened there. (laughs) All right, so I guess we, we swap one more time. Okay, just waiting for the clock. So how could a mortal say I'm the Alpha and Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end?
2: I take it that those are ways of asserting uniqueness. And so uh, a mortal could say that because, as it says, he's the firstborn from the dead, and he's the new Adam, and there isn't ever going to be another one of those. He's utterly unique in that way.
3: Okay, hang on. So when God says, I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last, and when Jesus says it, they, it's, they mean two different things? even though it's it's within a few verses of each other, the identical words on the lips of the father and the son, but they mean totally different things?
2: Well, Dr. Brown, context is king, and uh, it matters who you're talking about, right? If you're talking to a guy that plays in the NBA and he says, I'm good at basketball, that means one thing. And if you ask me and I brag and I say I'm good at basketball, which is false, by the way, um, it's just going to mean something very different, right? And so when you're talking... Revelation in no way confuses Jesus and God, by the way. And your, re- your reading of Revelation 2 is uh, just obviously mistaken. You're, you're, you claim that there's a his and a he there that refer to one and the same, both to Jesus and to God. That's a total confusion. It, they're referring to God, and God is mentioned in that context.
3: So it says that the throne of God and the Lamb are there, and his servants will serve him. Mm-hmm serve Him as God and the Lamb.
2: Nope. That's an obvious misreading.
3: So I, I just quoted it. How did I yeah, misread it? Yeah, I have two,
2: I have two uh, minutes here. So uh, the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, okay? There's God. Oh, and by the way, there's also the Lamb, okay? God is not the Lamb. The Lamb is not God. There are two selves, two beings there. And the, and the, the, the passage continues. And His servants will worship Him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, right? And the very next verse, and then you're like, aha, it says his. they got to be the same he, which is a way of saying they're the same self. That's why I said if you are a Trinitarian, you're a one-self Trinitarian. The very next verse says, and there will be no more night. They need no light or lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever, Okay, so it's really God who's the primary and the ultimate object of religious worship in the Bible. And it's not Tuggy's theory that worshiping Jesus is to the glory of God is what Paul says explicitly. Because he's exalted, uh, the worship that's given to him is to the glory of God the Father.
3: Yeah, so reading through Revelation 22, it doesn't say what you said it says. It does say that there's one throat of God and the lamb and his servants worship him who, God and the lamb, but if we, if we could just continue on this. I just read it. Right, you Go read ahead. it and it said what I said. And then, but we'll, we'll leave it there. Folks, you can read it in the Bible for yourselves e- easily enough, okay? Mm-hmm. Um, how, <laughs> I, I, I do have to say that some of this is, is beyond shocking in terms of trying to simplify things. You end up with an unbelievably confusing theology. So we focus now on Paul's praying to Jesus and the Father using a singular verb. So, number one, do you pray to Jesus and the Father and use a singular verb when praying to both? Which verse are you talking about with the singular verb? 1 Thessalonians 3 and 2 Thessalonians 2. 1 um, yeah, Thessalonians I, three thirteen would uh, be good. 2 Thessalonians 2, I don't 16. have those
2: in front of me. I don't know if there's a translation problem. You did.
3: No, there's no translation
2: problem. You did problem. throw out Jude 4 and Titus 2.13, where if you just look in the well, footnotes let's focus provided on by these translators. Let's focus
3: on, on yeah, these, Yeah, no, I do
2: not. Uh, okay, my view about prayer is that um, the primary and the ultimate object of prayer is God, and Jesus taught us to pray to God. However, I do agree that there does seem to be some direct addressing Jesus presupposed in the New Testament, such as calling upon the name of the Lord, or Maranatha, like you mentioned. And uh, no, I don't pray to God and Jesus with one he, because that's to confuse them for the same self and the same being.
3: But that's what Paul does, and though, And if they're explicitly. the same self
2: and the same being, Jesus can't be a
3: real man. Or it's one God, Father, Son, and Spirit, as the Bible says. So you don't pray the way Paul prays. First Thessalonians 3, 2 Thessalonians 2, the Greek is very explicit. You, you can dig into this as much as, as you want. It's, it's unambiguous in the Greek, and it's gotten the attention of many a Greek scholar. But 1 Thessalonians 3, or 2 Thessalonians 2. 1
2: Thessalonians 3 what?
3: 3.13. And the Greek blameless is... Blameless
2: before... May he strengthen your hearts in holiness, so that you may be blameless before yeah, so who our he? God may, and Father...
3: You know, the prayer goes and to Jesus at the and the Father. the of the Lord Jesus. Right, the prayer goes to Jesus and the Father that he may do these things for us. It's, it's a yeah. singular verb. And it's to Jesus and the Father. And then in Second Thessalonians 2, it's to, uh, it's, in yeah. First Thessalonians 1 Thessalonians 3, it's to the Father and Jesus. And in Second Thessalonians, it's to Jesus and the Father. So you don't pray the way Paul prayed, to Jesus and the Father or the Father and Jesus using a singular verb.
2: I don't see, I mean, I think you're reading your own confusion of them as oneself into the text here. I don't see Paul confusing them. I see you confusing them, right? He's distinguishing them. Now, may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way to you. Both of them, too, right? Otherwise, you wouldn't say, and. And may the Lord make you increase. I think that's Jesus. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another yeah. and for all just as we abound in love for you. And may He strengthen your hearts in holiness, so that you may be blameless before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with His saints. So I think that He in thirteen is the Lord that was mentioned in verse twelve. I think that's Jesus strengthening yeah. your hearts. Well, I'll tell you what, you weren't there is pre- no praying to God and Jesus under one He here. Yeah, yeah. Where are there, you looking? There,
3: there, there is. So tell you what, you weren't prepared to address the Greek. Maybe in a subsequent time we can chat on the radio about that. I'll, I'll, I'll give you that liberty. Genesis 48, the exact same thing, the prayer of blessing, the God of our fathers, the God who is with us, the angel who redeemed, bless, that singular Hebrew, and God is referred to as God, God, and the angel. Unless God appeared in the angel, who's this angel to whom Jacob prays along with God in the singular? Genesis 48.
2: Who's the angel of the Lord?
3: To whom Jacob it, prays in mm, the singular, together mm. with God, in Genesis forty-eight. Yeah, I mean,
2: this is an interesting topic—the angel of the Lord. I mean,
3: uh, can you oh well. just get to finish that, in fairness, because I asked yeah, the question like late? Yeah. Okay.
2: Uh, what was the question? What do I make of the angel of the Lord? I mean, that's. No, a, no, I'm no, not going to answer that. In two minutes. What do the fact
3: that Jacob prays to God of his fathers and the angel who redeemed him, yeah. and prays in the singular? to both of them said so may yeah. he bless yeah. speaking of God and the angel
2: right so if you take the angel of the Lord to literally be an angel uh, then you can talk to the angel and you're talking to God because the angel is on a mission from God and representing God to you if the angel of the Lord is taken to be a theophany then it's really just an appearance of God uh, but it still could be talked about sort of as if it were a different person than God Singular, and so these, the the, these are the, uh, yes, because these, I mean, these are the interpretive options open to Trinitarians and Unitarians.
1: Got it. Okay, thank you. <laughs> Dr. Tuggy. you have a five minute closing statement. You may begin when ready.
2: There is no one doctrine of the Trinity. Notice, I didn't say the Trinity is contradictory. He assumed that I thought that and he said it. I don't think there's one doctrine. I think there's mandated language, and people make sense of it as best they can, and some of them basically think that there's three persons, three beings there, and some of them think it's just kind of three personalities or aspects or something like that. But however which way you take it, any trinity theory is a doctrine of inference, tottering atop a mound of doubtful inferences drawn from relatively few scriptural texts. In contrast, we Unitarian Christians build our theology on explicit and or clear New Testament teaching. In my opening statement, I quoted some texts which clearly imply that the one God is none other than the Father. My opponent has not explained those away. He's just contradicted John 17, 3. Oh, yes, well, there is another one that's true God. It's not what Jesus says. I'm going to stick with him. I also described six observable facts about the New Testament, which would be very surprising if the authors believed in a triune God, but which makes sense if they held that the one God is the Father alone. My opponent has not adequately addressed this powerful and broad-based evidence. For some reason, it doesn't bother him that the word God is pretty much always reserved for the Father 99% of the time. He thinks as a Trinitarian, that's just kind of the thing you'd expect. I beg to differ. He has, at times, uh, cited texts which are difficult to interpret. He's, at times, cited texts like Titus 2.13. that uh, There are translation problems about those texts, and if you translate them the other way, uh, it's not a problem. So uh, there's a lot going on here, and we can't talk about all of the texts, but my position is clear, and it's what the explicit New Testament one is. The one God is the Father, also There's the Lord Jesus, risen and exalted to his right hand, who therefore, like it says, you should worship, not as God, not as a second God, but as the Son of God. If you think a disciple should accept the theology of Jesus and his apostles, then I urge you to open your minds to this important ongoing scriptural reformation. It's a mistake to collapse God and his Son into the same self. Again, in the New Testament, in various ways, Uh, they simultaneously differ from one another it doesn't matter whether the difference is with respect to divinity or not a thing can't be and not be the same way at the same time that's just nonsense if at any time we observe that things differ well we know we're really dealing with two things God sent his son Jesus never sent his son God and Jesus are not the same being son died on a cross father didn't I don't know about this son that never died. That's not in the New Testament. It's not mentioned. They're a a mutually and loving, cooperating pair. They're not just modes or something like that. Still, I don't think Dr. Brown has really told you what his Trinity theory is. As I mentioned, the word Trinity is not in the New Testament. But what's more important is the idea of the Trinity. The idea of three persons sharing one divine essence is not in the New Testament either. If it were there, it would conflict with the clear New Testament teaching that the one God is none other than the Father. Dr. Brown has muddied the waters by pointing out that early writers call Jesus God. Yes, they do. And these same writers tell you in no uncertain terms that the one true God, God in the deepest sense of the term, is the Father. Around the year 180, some authors do start to talk about the Trinity, but by this they just meant this triad, this group of three, God. God's human son, and God's spirit. They didn't use the word Trinity to refer to a triune God. That only became popular in the last two decades of the 300s AD. The idea of a Trinity is a blatant anachronism if you're reading the New Testament. Uh, If you think someone there is talking about a triune God, that's like saying that Thomas Jefferson discoursed about the Internet. The majority of Christian theologians have for a long time speculated that God is somehow triune. This is striking, to be sure, but a disciple must allow that Scripture can can overturn long-standing human traditions. Don't rely too much on the shortcut of siding with the majority. In the past, this would have burned you on many occasions. You would have sided with the majority of Jews against Paul and Peter in the year 45. You would have sided with the Catholics in 1520. In both, ca- both cases, you'd be making a big mistake. Don't make that mistake now. Be a good Berean and study the scriptures to see if what I've argued is really so. Thank you.
3: I do find it interesting that Dr. Tuggy had a prepared final statement which said that I didn't respond to his arguments before the debate even happened, but we'll put that aside. Uh, I go with the God of the Bible and completely categorically reject the God created by Dr. Tuggy. He has two gods. You can call Jesus your God, but he's not really the same God. You can worship him as God, but he's not really the same God. You can give him the same glory as God, but he's not really the same God. When the Father says, I'm the first and the last, the beginning and the end, the Alpha and the Omega, it means one thing. But when the Son says, I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the first and the last, it means something totally different. I'll I'll stay with the God of the Bible and the plain sense of scripture, which does not need a philosophy professor or anybody to explain to you. Scriptural witness is clear. The Son is the mighty God. He's God, all these, everyone has chapter and verse. With an eternal throne, he and the Father are one. The Father is in him, he's in the Father. He's before all things and in him all things hold together. All things were created by him and for him. He is the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last, he is the great God our Savior, Jesus the Messiah, and we are saved by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus the Messiah. He is God over all, blessed forever, the radiance of God's glory through whom the universe was created. Now, we baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit. There you have it. Not baptize in the name of God, and by the way, this Jesus guy who's pretty good, but he's not really God. He is God, but he's not really God. You can call him God, but he isn't God. No, no, baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit. The fact that I'm accused of muddying the waters by quoting the disciples of the apostles who believed that Jesus was eternal deity, I don't know what kind of mud that is. That's truth, verifying, bearing witness to what was read. And Psalm 102 quoted in Hebrews 1. Oh my! Here are the words. This is, I'm reading from Hebrews 1. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning and the heavens are the work of your hands. Dr. Tuggy says that is referring to another God and a new creation. That, that's not eisegesis reading something into the text that's not there. That's imaginary interpretation. And from those of you who came and supported Dr. Tuggy, reconsider, reconsider. John 12, which was not addressed, not even at any point in an attempted rebuttal, John tells us that Isaiah saw God. Yahweh, Isaiah 6, and it applies that same character, that same person, to the one who suffers and dies for us in Isaiah 53, it really is unambiguous. And most translators and commentators would agree, 1 John 5, 20, this refers to Jesus as the true God, and we know that the Son of God has come and has given us an understanding, so that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. You know, you, you've heard arguments to try to show what's reasonable and not, and, and I'm not a philosopher, I just stayed with what the text says, the plain sense of the text. I believe in one God who's eternally existed and made himself known to us as Father, Son, and Spirit. There's a gentleman named Vladimir Susiech who, who just sent something over. Uh, if we want to use some of the same logic, quote, logic we heard tonight, Well, Jude verse four says that Jesus is the only sovereign and Lord of Christians. That's one. Two, Unitarianism, Unitarianism, Dr. Tuggy's position is true. These are two suppositions. Three, since only one person is God, as such the Father and Son do not share attributes, the Father could not possibly be our only sovereign and Lord. If the Father is not our only sovereign and Lord, he cannot possibly be God. So either Unitarianism is false or the Father is not God. Well, It's it's a cute little layout and syllogism there. But I would urge you, friends, don't buy these bogus ideas that Colossians 1, speaking of the Son being before all things, and the one through whom all things are created, is speaking of a future creation. Don't buy this nonsense that when the Son says, I am the first and last, Alpha and Omega, beginning and end, that he doesn't mean that he's eternal God. Don't believe anyone that tells you when the son says before Abraham was, I am, using the divine word, same as you'd have in Exodus, the third chapter where God reveals himself. Don't believe anyone that tells you he didn't mean what he said. Jesus meant what he said. Paul meant what he said. John meant what he said. The Bible means what it says. The son is eternal God. The son, the father, spirit, one God, that is who we worship. And I will give my blood for that God. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks to both of our participants.
1: We're uh, glad to have them here to uh, wrestle with these issues. Now is it going to be time for a question and answer period. I'm going to stand over here in this aisle. So if anybody has a question, please come and line up in this aisle. We're going to require that each successive question gets asked to a different debater so that we have a... Uh, even number of responses from each of them. So whoever the first question asks the question toward, the next person has to ask a question to the other person. If he wants to ask it to a different person, we'll just switch up the order. So uh, please tell us who you're directing the question at. Please keep your question brief. Uh, We don't want any statements. Uh, We'll let the debaters give the statements. Uh, Just ask questions and tell us who they're directed to. Hi, my question is for
4: Dr. Brown. Uh, Thank you so much for both of you for the interesting debate. Uh, So my question is that you said that the Son is not the same as Jesus, but if Jesus... No, I I didn't say that. The Son is not the same as Jesus because he's both 100% God and 100% man. I think you you said that.
3: Oh, okay. The Son is incarnate as Jesus. Okay. Okay. But
4: from the incarnation, Jesus is part of the triune Godhead. Yes. Doesn't that mean that a man is now part of the Godhead, which would be blasphemous? Because a human man is now part of the Godhead. And also when you talk about the complex unity of God, are you also accepting that if it's complex, it it could be more than three? It's just that till now God has revealed in three, but it could be four or five, you know, multiple Holy Spirits.
3: Yeah, two questions. Uh, No, the Bible's explicit Father, Son, and Spirit, so it's not more than three, but I prefer to speak of God being complex in his unity because the Bible doesn't give us simple formulas. The Godhead remains the Godhead. Church, uh, there are different conflicts over the centuries about issues and, you know, that you're joining the, the, the humanity to the Godhead and there are accusations of that. But God remains eternal God. He clothed himself in human flesh for a time. He did it, for example, in Genesis 18 when he did it, when Yahweh appears to Abraham, God remained eternal God, just clothed in human flesh. So there's no problem with that. It's, it's not joining anything extra to God. God is the only one that we worship as God, end of subject. He, he can clothe himself in human flesh for a second or for 30 years or forever, that's, that's up to him. But it doesn't make a man into God or join humanity to deity.
5: But is Jesus part of Yeah, it's, it's not,
3: yeah. Uh, uh, Dr. Tuggy, you get a to re- a minute though to add in your response.
2: Um. Yeah, I mean, I have a lot to say about traditional two natures speculations and they're super problematic. Uh, Some interpret the natures as beings, some interpret them and they say that human nature died on the cross. Some interpret the natures as properties. So divine nature is just whatever properties are necessary and sufficient for making something God. Human nature is whatever properties you have to have to be human. I didn't get into that whole thing because Dr. Brown shies away from this traditional language he just wants to say, and what he thinks is scriptural language, that the Son is God. And he seems to think he's the same self as God. He doesn't particularly get into this business of natures. Uh, if you want to know what I think about two natures theories, look at my presentation called Clarifying Catholic Christologies online.
4: Okay, I have a question for Dr. Tuggy. In uh, Genesis 1, verse uh, 26, and also several other places in the Old Testament, This language is used. It says, then God said, let us make man, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Um, So I'm wondering how you would explain that us right there in Genesis 1.
2: Yes, thank you. That's a great question. Um, So I agree with interpreters like the evangelical Trinitarian Dr. Michael Heiser that in the context of that time, uh, God is referring to, uh, basically his heavenly court that attend him um, notice that he says uh, let us make man in our image and likeness and then he proceeds to do it all by himself and that might seem a little strange some call this um, the plural of deliberation or it could be a plural of announcement I mean here's an analogy uh, you're hanging out at Thanksgiving and my mom says I know what we should do let's make a pie and then my mom just makes a pie Um, And there's nothing particularly problematic about that. And later on, you know, he has become like one of us, understanding good and evil. The us presumably there is what theologians call, textual scholars call the divine council, what we usually call angels. So I think that's the best reading. I don't think it's like one person of the Trinity talking to another. Because again, whenever creation is clearly talked about in the New Testament, it's the Father who they're talking about. There are, of course, a small handful of contentious passages. Colossians 1, uh, 1 Corinthians 8, John 1, where people think, "Ah, oh, this has got to be God. There's got to be two creators, one of which who creates through another one, right? But I, I think those are mistaken interpretations. They just derive from those Lagos theory traditions. And it's, it's really the Lagos theory traditions that are the origin of this saying that the seen God, the seen Lord in the Old Testament has got to be Jesus because it's absolutely impossible to see the Father. You see that in Justin Martyr um, toward the end of his dialogue with Trypho the Jew, for instance. And it's motivated by what I said, his platonic views about God, that God can't interact directly with creation, so he's got to do it indirectly.
3: Yeah, there, yeah so... Uh, some of what, what Dr. Tuggy said is, is possible, and of course there's great scholarly debate about that, but what's interesting in Hebrew, mutenu, is not just let us make, but in our image, in our likeness. So are, are human beings made in the image of angels, in the image of God? So although the language doesn't prove Trinity, it's in harmony with Trinity. As for the text, texts that are allegedly contentious, they're only contentious because the Son is rejected as the Creator. There's nothing contentious about John 1, Colossians 1, 1 Corinthians 8, or Hebrews 1, nothing contentious whatsoever. But uh, another verse that could have been used to support your point, and one I've emphasized, Genesis 48, 15, and 16, the God in whose ways my father Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who's been my shepherd from my birth to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all harm, singular verb, bless the lads. So there we have quite explicitly God and the redeeming angel joined together as one and addressed in a singular verb, very clearly Trinitarian in understanding there. It doesn't work in another sense.
4: Thank you very
0: much. Uh, my question is for Dr. Brown. I'm curious what your response is regarding controversies. We know that Paul the Apostle traveled as a missionary extensively, as recorded in the book of Acts, And he got in a lot of trouble all over, and yet there's no mention anywhere of him proclaiming Jesus to be God or issues that any Jew over the last 20 centuries would have with what we would call a Trinity theory. So I just was curious if you could respond to that point and tell us how Paul managed to get away preaching Jesus as God to Jews and not have them ever get upset about that at all.
3: Well, first thing, it doesn't give us every reason that they were upset, but we know that they were upset from city after city after city. And they claim that he was preaching something new, some kind of new doctrine. And in Acts the 16th chapter, when Paul and Silas are saying there's a, a new religion they're preaching, Roman law was you can't bring in another god. And we also know that the accusations from the outside that the Christians worship Jesus as God. I quoted from, from from Pliny. For example, as, so we do, have, we do have evidence that there was controversy over that, and we know, uh, beginning in Acts 9, I believe, that he preaches Messiah as Son of God, but even more importantly, his conversion, who are you, Lord? First century Jew, God appears to him. He falls down. Who are you, Lord? I'm Jesus. So right there, we have it. And once he preached that, that was outrageous. But also remember that one of the biggest controversies was that he was going to the Gentiles, To us, it seems like no controversy at all, but it was a controversy then. So, number one, there is evidence that refutes your your point. Number two, there is the explicit reference to who are you, Lord, not just some other being there. And now he's going to live the rest of his life for this Lord. And then we have his explicit statements in the New Testament. So, Acts tells us a certain amount, but generally speaking, we're going to draw our doctrine from the explicit statements elsewhere in the New Testament. Acts 20, 28 uh, there's debate over this because the, the Greek is not 100% clear, but it does speak of uh, the, the God's sheep uh, bought with the blood of his own. Is it his own blood or his own and son is left out? So that's a debatable point, but certainly we can make our case uh, just the same through the book of Acts and from early external evidence that Christians worshipped Jesus as a God.
2: So do I have one minute? Okay. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like listening to that answer, his answer is no, there isn't any evidence uh, of controversy about Jesus being God or about God being triune. I mean, what the controversy was about about, is about him being the Messiah, about the inclusion of the new covenant with the Gentiles. Uh, With resurrection, they mock that, they mock him for that, right? I mean, what you see early Christians preaching is exemplified in what you see in Acts chapter 2, where Peter says Jesus of Nazareth was a man attested to you by God, right? Two different ones there, with deeds of power, wonders, and signs that God did through him, right? It's the one God acting through this agent. As you yourselves know, this man, wait, how can he just say man and leave it there? But he does. This man handed over to you according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed, right? The only son in the New Testament is the killed one by the hands outside of the law. God raised him up, having freed him from death, because it was impossible for him to be held in its power. This is the big message. Nothing about
6: Jesus being God there. Hello, Dr. Tugget. Uh My question is about the new creation that you seem to have touched upon. Uh, in John, it says that in him, clearly the logos is indicated, mm-hmm. was life. And that life was the light of men and the light was manifest, and I take the manifestation of that light that was in the Lagos to be the, the man Messiah, Jesus, the Lord Christ. I'm wondering, for a biblical Unitarian, does this connect with the creation account, where it seems as though Adam came out from the Holy Spirit?
2: Oh, I don't understand what you mean by that last part about Adam coming from the Holy Spirit. Well,
6: in the, in the Genesis creation, which it seems like John's talking about a creation like Genesis. Yeah. And in 1 Corinthians 15 and in Romans 5, mm-hmm. we find out that there's a first and a last Adam. The first Adam is clearly a man. So I'm saying it is it possible that this Lagos uh is sending out coming out from the lagos like the breath of life went into the man that that god created
2: yes i mean some contemporary theologians call what you just said a spirit christology uh, understanding jesus as a man uh, whom god gives with the spirit without measure he says in one place and this is why he has the special calling the special powers the special privileges uh, that he does is because he has that calling he has that empowerment by god's spirit John 1, um, we think, is a comment on Genesis, and it's, it's sort of a giving an eternal origin to Jesus in a sense. I think he's trying to steal, this is just my personal speculation, I think he's trying to steal early kind of Gnostics' thunder, who had Jesus being some kind of heavily eon. Hey, I'll do you one better. God's eternal word, which is in this time closely associated with his wisdom, by which he made all things, that is what we see in the man Jesus. The point that Dr. Brown can't seem to get his mind around because he's only ever read John 1 in a Logos theory kind of way, is that 1.14, when it says the Word became flesh and dwelled among us, is not a spirit gaining a body or something like that. It's like earlier statements where God's Word uh, leaps down from heaven, uh, God's wisdom, uh, you know, becomes a book in, in the Torah and things like that. It's, it's for them, it's not a difficult thought. Again, they know they're dealing with a man, a man who was recently born, not an eternal being.
3: It's kind of bizarre that when Dr. Tuggy disagrees with me, he assumes I'm not familiar with the position I reject. Of course, I'm quite familiar with these other readings. And John 1 is best read in the Memra context, the, the, the word of the Lord in Judaism. Uh, but uh, of course, he is... An, amazingly, Dr. Tuggy said, in a sense, John, speaking of the eternal pre-existence of Jesus, hello, that was my whole point tonight, the eternal pre-existence of the Son. Let's just read it. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the be- beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of man. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glories of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Slam dunk, simple. just accept what it says. You don't need any other philosophy. Go with the word.
4: My question is for Dr. Brown. One of the qualities of the only true God in First John 3:20 is that God knows all things. So the only true God is. Omniscient. Now, Dr. Tuggy brought up the verse, uh, Mark 13, 32, where Lord Jesus Christ himself said of oh, that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, mm-hmm. but only the Father. So Jesus Christ does not know when the day of judgment is, therefore he's not omniscient, therefore he's not God. How do you answer that?
3: Well, the way it's always answered. He said in his incarnation, what's the mystery? He had to sleep as a human being. He got tired and slept. He had to eat as a human being. He didn't know everything as a human being. The Spirit had to reveal things. He said he did the works he did by the Holy Spirit. I mean, it's very simple, self-evident. And why should it surprise us that the Son, as a human being, doesn't know certain things? Why in the world should that surprise us? The Son, as a human being, had to learn to speak. The Son, as a human being, had to learn to walk. The Son, as a human being, could bleed. So, of course, this is self-evident, the same answer that's, that's always given to the question. And Philippians 2 tells us what happened. So, so, again, it's quite clear. He existed in the form of God. But he didn't hold on to that as something to use for his own advantage. Rather, he humbled himself. If he was just a created being, it's not humility to become a created being. Rather, he came down. He said, repeat, I came down. I'm the bread that came down from heaven. I came from the Father. I'm from above. You're from below. He states his preexistence every which way possible as do the the other New Testament authors. And if he is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last, surely he has no limitation in his eternal state as son. But as a human being, of course, he's totally limited. That's the incarnation. That's what Philippians 2 tells us. And that's the example of humility for us that even though as eternal deity he could hold on to that, he didn't. He stripped himself of those privileges and became a human being and died for us. That is the incredible message of the gospel. And to make it just a glorified man who died for us is to completely neuter the love of God and the power of the gospel.
2: Yeah, so this is another case where Dr. Brown is presenting something as obvious as what, as in a way the Bible's always been read this way, and it's it's just not obvious at all. So he's talking about in Philippians two when it says the Son emptied Himself. Um, the traditional answer, which he it sounded like he was going to give for a second, was that the Son knows everything as God and is limited in knowledge as man, which of course is nonsense because if you know something in a na- if you know everything in a nature, you know it. And if you have limited knowledge in nature, you have limited knowledge. So that's just a way of saying it looks like that he does not doesn't know everything. Traditionally, they accepted the Creed of Chalcedon. They would say the characteristics of each nature was preserved. And so he had, traditionally they would just say, no, he was omniscient. The problem is that it looks like he's then deceiving the people listening to him. This idea that he somehow lessened his knowledge in the act of incarnation, is a new theory propounded in the 1800s. It's called kenosis theory. You can look it up. No one ever said that before the 1800s. Hey,
7: how you doing? My own question is for Dr. Tuggy. Um, this is coming out of Matthew chapter 21, verse 15 and 16. It says, When the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he had done, and the children who were shouting in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they became indignant and said to him, do you hear what these children are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes, have you never read, out of the mouth of infants and nursing babes, you have prepared praise for yourself. Now that comes out of Psalm chapter 8, verse 2, where David was praying to Yahweh, to the Lord, and he was ordained, and the Bible says that he ordained praise for himself. They was indignant because the people was giving Jesus the same praise that was being ordained, that was ordained for Yahweh only. That's why he said praise for yourself. So how can Jesus and Yahweh or God have the same exact praise and it not be idolatry if Jesus wasn't God?
2: Okay, thanks for the question. Yeah, about them getting the same worship, look at the reasons cited for worshiping God in Revelation four and contrast them with the reasons cited worshiping the exalted man Jesus in Revelation five. Now about this Yahweh text being applied to Jesus in the passage cited in Matthew uh, 21, this is a common thing in the New Testament. Okay, and, but there's a problem here. I call it the fulfillment fallacy. And it's a beginner's mistake in reading the New Testament. You say the original passage was about this person and then the New Testament says it's applied to Jesus, so Jesus must be the same one as it was originally about. This is an obvious mistake. Here's one way you can see it. Uh, psalm 110.1 is quoted many times in the New Testament. The Lord, that's God, says to my Lord, sit in my right hand, etc. Originally, scholars believe this was a coronation psalm. Some king, maybe David, It's saying, God says to David, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. They apply this to Jesus. Okay, we cannot conclude that Jesus is David or whoever that original king was. It's a new application in a new context. That's how they're using the Old Testament. I'm sorry if I went past my two minutes. No, I'm sorry. I was pointing to say uh, the
3: clock wasn't there, so I'll set my own watch for a minute. Yeah, great point, sir. Perfect point. Uh, This... Fulfillment fallacy is something that Dr. Tuggy came up with. So let's just forget that theory and go with scripture. The only way you can take a text that explicitly talks about praise, honor, adoration that belongs to Yahweh and apply it to anyone else is if that anyone else is Yahweh. Otherwise, it is a gross misapplication. It is taking glory from the only true God. Not only so, let's remember that kurios, Lord, was used in the Septuagint to to translate Yahweh almost 7,000 times. So that's where you're seeing, Lord, 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 in your Bible. And Jesus is Lord, 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 Lord. Unambiguous, the identification was absolutely there. That's why it was scandalous to some, but glorious to others. Rather than call it nonsense, let's bow down and worship.
4: Hi, thank you for allowing us this forum. I feel like a family reunion, all the faces I see here. So thank you. Um, I got a follow-up for Dr. Brown, a follow-up question to the debate question. Is the God of the Bible the Father alone? On page 11 of the book you cited, volume 2, Answering Jewish Objections, Mm -hmm. you write on page 11 to the answer to this question in the affirmative. You say, yes, using John 17:3. three, uh, Jesus himself taught that his father was the one and only God. And then you say that Paul taught it clearly, mm-hmm. the one true God, our father. And then you use 1 Corinthians eight. Mm-hmm. Uh, how does that fit? And you restated that today. You said the Father is the only true God. So how does that fit with the, uh, your position in the negative?
3: Yeah, you, you never want to quote an author to refute an author. Because I, Why don't you quote the rest of what I wrote? The whole purpose of writing that was to exalt the Son as the eternal God. Can you show me where I said that the Son is not the only true God? Can you show me where I said that, hinted at it, anything within a trillion miles of that no 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 of course not is it true that the father is not lord jude 4 that our only master and lord is jesus so you're going to conclude from that that the father is not our master that god is not our lord 1 corinthians 8 we have one god one lord does that mean that the father is not lord no so you're you are Just as Dr. Tuggy is constantly putting words, concepts into the minds of New Testament writers to come up with these bizarre things, creation in the beginning is a future creation, and first in the last, Alpha and Omega, beginning and end, actually doesn't mean that. You now have to put words in my mouth in my own book. So the simple answer, read the rest of what I wrote, sir. It's all there. I never said that the Son is not true God. Never said it, never hinted at it. In fact, the whole reason I wrote that was to reach out to my Jewish people to help them understand the nature of God's complex unity and how Father, Son, and Spirit are God. So you should know that reading it, but thank you for the question anyway. So I never said that the Father is God and the Son is not, or the Father is true God and the Son is not. Never said it, never hinted at it. In fact, everything I wrote was the opposite of that. Thank you for asking.
2: Yeah, I mean, look, if there's one true God and it's the Father, that's just to say that no one else is. If Donald Trump is the one true president of the United States, then anybody that's not Donald Trump is not currently president of the United States. The passage is not ambiguous. As for Paul, well, first of all, Jude 4, look up what your translator's footnote. There's a problem with the translation there. and He keeps saying that and assuming his preferred translation. Um, as for Paul, he does not confuse Jesus with Jesus' God. He calls in Ephesians 1, the Father, God the Father, the God of the Lord Jesus Christ, okay? This Lord has a God over him, so he's not being called Lord in the sense that Dr. Brown would prefer. Again, they distinguish the Lord God from the Lord Jesus. Look at the start of all of Paul's letters. He sends greetings from the two of them. If they were the same self, that would be senseless.
5: Uh, I have a question for um, Dr. Uh, Tuggy. Um, In Psalms 49, 7 through uh, 10, it says, Truly no man can ransom another man, uh, truly no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life, for the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice, that he should live on forever and never see the pit. So, When this scripture is saying that no human being can ransom a human being, you know, every human is broken and sinful, how can it be that if Jesus is just a man, that he could ransom us from our sins?
2: Yeah, so it's not a New Testament teaching that Jesus has to be God to ransom uh, or to be a proper person to provide atonement for our sins. It is is an explicit New Testament teaching that Jesus is a man and that he died. And as I mentioned earlier tonight, in Hebrews 2, it seems to say that a qualification for providing atonement was that he should be like his brothers in all things and that he should be flesh and blood. So I don't take the passage that you're you're, uh, citing in Psalm 49 to be stating some kind of general theory of atonement that's supposed to control how we read the New Testament. New Testament doesn't have a lot of theory of atonement in it. It says that Jesus is the spotless lamb that takes away the sins of the world. It compares him to the Old Testament sacrifices. It says he's God's precious, beloved son. And uh, it says we know how much God loves us because while we were still sinners, Christ, not God, Christ, God's Christ died for us, the man Jesus. So they seem to think that he's a plenty precious and valuable sacrifice This theory that he has to be of infinite value because uh, the the person that provides atonement has to be of infinite value because sins against God have infinite disvalue and somehow the values wouldn't balance outright or something like this. This comes from St. Anselm, the medieval philosopher, and it's just unheard of in Christian tradition before then. Before then, they would speculate in other ways. For instance, some of the church fathers say that Jesus has to, quote, be God, They mean, in some sense, uh, have divine nature, whether or not it's in the full sense. Uh, They say Jesus has to be God in that having the divine nature so that he can make us God, so that he can divinize us. The idea is you have to have a quality before you can give that quality to another, which is not true. That's that's a ridiculous speculation. But, yeah, anyway, um, you don't want to put too much value in speculations like Anselm's.
3: Yeah, so no speculation, God gave his one and only son. And if he did not give of him very self, of course he couldn't save the world. Scripture's explicit, there's one savior. Yahweh said he's the only savior. When Paul refers to Jesus, unambiguously in the Greek, unless you're going to try to read something out of it because you're troubled by it, he speaks of our God and savior, Jesus Christ. And Peter says we're saved by the righteousness of our God and savior, Jesus Christ. And of course, how else is God going to save the world and bring righteous forgiveness for the sins of the world? The reason the Messiah dying for us was so precious is because the Messiah is the divine son. As for Jude 4, looking at translation notes, the terms master and Lord both refer to the same person. The construction in Greek is known as the Granville Sharp rule, as any Greek scholar here would tell us and affirm. Pretty simple.
5: Thank you, Dr. Brown, for uh, answering our questions here, and Dr. Tuggy. Yes, uh, you could both answer this question. It's quite simple, probably yes or no. Was Jesus the Eternal Father in Isaiah 9:6?
3: Yeah, that's a mistranslation. Aviad uh, either means Father forever or Father of eternity, as in possessor of eternity. The King was the Father of the nation, so a better translation either would be Father forever or father of eternity or possessor of, a, of eternity. The son is not confused with the father. The son is referred to as Yahweh. The father is referred to as Yahweh. God in triunity can be referred to as Yahweh. But the son is not the father, and the father is not the son. So Isaiah 9.6, Pele'o <laughs> etzel gibber aviat sar shalom. Aviad there is best translated as father forever or father of eternity as in possessor of eternity. But he is not called everlasting father there.
2: I'll take a pass. I don't have anything illuminating to say about that verse. Dr. Brown,
8: I think Dr. Tuggy sorry, is that Tuggy. correct? Okay, uh, Dr. Tuggy. Uh, it's been suggested that unless one believes that Jesus is fully God, then one cannot believe that Jesus is fully Savior. And yet, we represent a people who believe that Jesus is fully Savior that if you don't believe that Jesus died for one's sins, you, or that he's fully God, you can't believe that he died for one's sins, and yet we believe uh, he, he died for one's sins. That if you don't believe Jesus is God, then you're taking glory away from God by worshiping Jesus. Yet as a people, we believe in worshiping Jesus, and as Unitarians, that ought to be a scarier thought to us than, uh, than to others. And then it's, it's, I'm getting to my question. And then to wrap around that, it's suggested that in the Old Testament, the people, at least who knew God best, actually thought of him as a plurality of beings, that two beings were the one God. Uh, And also, of course, they believe in the Holy Spirit. I want you to speak to the idea of how essential is it that the way we think about God affects whether we can be in relationship with God, know God, um, be aware of God. Uh, I understand you give respect to the faith and genuine faith of people who disagree with us. So I'd I'd like to hear you talk about why it is that we can look at it in that way. We can disagree and still respect.
2: The question is why does it matter whether we understand God properly? Something like that. It matters quite a lot in this case, and um, you know, I'm a Unitarian, but I'm not an anti-Trinitarian. If you think the New Testament teaches some Trinity theory, go for it. I think that's what you should believe. Uh, However, when you look into serious scholarship, these traditional proof texts just keep falling and falling. There's a big trend in this in the last couple hundred years. Why do I think it's important to distinguish God from the Son of God? Um, Well, partly it's because Jesus is supposed to be a model for us to imitate. And I can't put on my omniscience, omnipotence, and my immunity to temptation and so on and imitate that. But I can do what Paul is talking about in Philippians 2, which as I read it, and some other scholars read it this way as well, Philippians 2, I think, is about Jesus' earthly obedience. And in fact, that is sufficient to make Paul's point. Have this mind in you that's like the mind uh, that Jesus had. Basically, he says he served God even through a horrible and painful death. Jesus is a model of faith for us, and uh, it was gracious of him to volunteer to be that sacrifice. Dr. Brown substitutes his own formulation that God gives of his own self when Jesus dies. Well, I think God suffered to see his only son be crucified. I think that was a horrible thing just as if I saw my only son crucified. But this idea that it was God himself that died, well, no, God can't die, God is immortal. And Jesus is the first of many brothers, it says, and the author and finisher of our faith. So uh, it's important to distinguish them. When I was a Trinitarian, which I was for the first 30 years of my life, I did distinguish God and Jesus when I read the Bible And then when I started talking about theology, I just immediately confused them back together again.
3: Uh, Of course, it's not my own theology to embrace the incarnation. And this is a very serious error tonight. It's not a, a, a minor error. There was a controversy with Arian who believed that Jesus, or the Son, I should say, was the first created being. But to deny that and to just make him a glorified man, that's very serious, very demeaning to the Son, very dishonoring to the Son. Of course it matters what we believe about it. What if we believed he was a sinning human being? Could he die for our sins? Obviously not. And how can we have fellowship with the Holy Spirit if the Holy Spirit is just some kind of power and not personal? And how can you give the same worship to a created being, the same glory that you give to a created being without dishonoring the creator? That's hardly monotheistic, so I'm not the judge of anyone's salvation here but I would say you're espousing a terribly dangerous position that deeply dishonors the son and deeply dishonors the father. Okay, we've
1: been going for 30 minutes. We have a lot of questions, but uh, if you two agree to uh, respond to any more questions, we can keep asking or we can cut it off at any point you guys say. Want we'll to do a couple more? One more each? One more each. So right? we'll do one more each. Uh, so sorry for those who didn't get a chance, but perhaps you'll be able to... We'll tell uh, you what,
3: if we, uh, if we go to the end of the line, we're supposed to go 30 minutes. I'm just trying to stay with that. But yeah. if we go to the end of the line and nobody else...
1: Okay. No more work? people, will add to the line and we'll so finish up we'll the ones we have. Okay. Thanks. Sounds good. Yeah, sure. All
7: right. Good evening, everybody. Um, uh, Dr. T- Dr. Brown is my question. Uh, I know when the Scriptures... When Jesus asks his disciples who he, who he is, people say he's um, John the Baptist, Elijah, and then he, then he asks the disciples, who do you say I am? He said, he said they say, you're the Messiah, Lord. My question is, um, and, may, and I don't know the Bible as much as I probably should, but I've been reading it for the last four years or so. Is there a specific scripture where Jesus explicitly says
3: he's God? So first thing, the disciples say you're the Messiah, the son of the living God. That's the first thing. So what does that actually mean? Does it mean he's just a man? Does it mean more than man? How, how, how do we understand this? That's, that's the first thing. The second thing is Jesus does say that he and the Father are one, that he's in the Father and the Father's in him and if you've seen him, you've seen the Father and he says that he enjoyed glory with the Father before the world was created. And he also takes on the divine identity by saying, I am, which was what Yahweh said. And you, you have it, for example, in Psalm 50 and Hosea 1 as well, that, eh, yeah, I am, Egoi me in Greek. So in John 8:58, not only does he speak of his pre-existence, but directly identifies himself with Yahweh, which of course gets people very upset that are there. So here's the issue, though. If he just said, I am God, what does that mean? Does that mean that he's Father, Son, and Spirit? Does it it mean that God's no longer in heaven? What does it mean? So he explained things in a way that God, the one true God, remains seated and throned in heaven, and then he identifies himself in very clear ways with that one true God, and that's why the rest of the New Testament authors, contrary to what we heard that there are all these controversial texts, Hebrews 1's not controversial. The way Dr. Tuggy interpreted tonight is not controversial, it's impossible, okay? But I could go through the top commentaries, tell you what, Take the the top 30 English translations and look up every verse we cited, and you'll see it ain't so controversial. It's what scholars, Greek scholars, interpreters understand. In fact, there's been a wave of recent books written exalting Jesus the Son as eternal deity. In fact, there's some of the best scholarship on that. In recent years but but he does say things enough so that when thomas sees and resurrected, he gets it and he says my lord and my god clear enough
2: yeah so um what you're talking about is kind of i think the highlight of the first three gospels when they explicitly say who he is and he says he's the messiah in the new testament son of, the son of god that phrase is a title of the messiah You can tell by the way they use it. They kind of interchange them. The Son of God, comma, that is the Messiah, the Christ. Um, this, This is one of the facts, again, that's shocking if they're Trinitarian, but makes sense on my view. This is their main point. They do not make a main point of saying that he is God or has a divine nature. Now, he's referred several times, Dr. Brown, to the I am statements, The statement I am in Greek, ego eimi, is an idiom that's very often translated I am he or I am the one. The one he is in John is God's Christ, God's Messiah. And even uh, John 8.58, he thinks this uh, refers to eternal existence. Before Abraham was, I am he is the way it should be translated. As Dr. Brown knows, Jews will talk about predestined things as having always been. And that's an example of that.
4: Dr. time. I'm not sure the name. I'm sorry. Yes. Um, in this scripture, it says, uh, for there are three that bear record in heaven, the father, the word, and the Holy ghost. And these three are one, which is first John five, seven.
2: Yes. This used to be, um, a favorite proof text for Trinitarians and all, um, current translations of the Bible say that that verse was not in the original Greek text. Erasmus discovered this, the famous uh, 16th century New Testament scholar. He discovered that none of the Greek manuscripts had that verse the way you quoted it. Um, He took it out. There was an outcry because how else are we going to prove the Trinity if we don't have this verse that says these three are one? And so under political pressure, he put it back in. Um, Biblical Unitarians and other kinds of Unitarians kind of led the charge in the 17, and 1800s, saying, hey, that's not in the text. So yeah, look at the NIV, or the New American Standard, New Revised Standard. You're probably looking at the King James, I'm guessing. Yeah, yeah I think we probably agree on this one.
3: Okay, everybody get out your cameras, watch this. On this point, <laughs> we agree that 1 John 5, 7, as in the King James, is, is not in the original text. However, I totally disagree that there was a panic because that was the only way to prove the Trinity. It's just people thought it was in the Bible and it was a great proof text and it was a beautiful text, but, but it wasn't. And all the Trinitarian arguments that existed in early church history, they didn't need that text. What I find fascinating though, to go back to John 8:58, Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you before Abraham was, I am. Even you may say, I am he. So they picked up stones to throw at him. Why? Because he said, hey, I'm the predestined Messiah before Abraham lived? No, because he claimed to be the pre pre-existed eternal God. That's why they picked up stones to stone him. Sorry, but I got to stay with the word here.
7: Thank you.
5: Hi, my question's for Dr. Brown, and it is referring back to whenever you were talking about the angels appearing to Jacob, I be- Abraham, I believe. And if the angels of God, which appear in the Old Testament as eight. If the angel of God which appears in the Old Testament as an agent of God is Jesus, does that make make God an angel? And and if this is so, then why would he appear as an angel in the Old Testament and not in his man form, as you later say he does in the New Testament?
3: Yeah, thank you for the question. So Hebrew malach, like Greek, angelos, can mean an angel or it can mean a messenger. It, It doesn't speak necessarily of a particular quality of being. So there are examples where Malach Adonai, the angel of the Lord, appears, and that person thinks they're going to die because they've, they've seen God himself. Uh, Jacob wrestles with a man. Hosea 12 says it's a Malach, it's an angel. And then he names the place Peniel. He says, because I've seen God face to face and live. Genesis 18, Yahweh appeared to Abraham, and he looks up, and there are three men, And then it says that Yahweh and the two angels, as you read the text, Yahweh has an extensive dialogue with Abraham at the end of the chapter. The two angels go on to Sodom in the 19th chapter. So in Genesis 48, Jacob says, and and the Hebrew grammar is very, very clear. Anyone that could read Hebrew would have to agree grammatically. He speaks of God, God, and the angel he redeemed me, all as one and then prays in the Hebrew that that one will bless. So Jacob explicitly identifies this angel with whom he wrestled, who appeared to him, the one who redeemed them, as Yahweh, as God. And then, for example, in Exodus 23, God says that his name is on his malach, his, his messenger, and that that's why he will not forgive their sins. So in some cases, it could simply be there's an angel, bearing divine glory, and because of that, people were terrified. I'm sure Dr. Tuggy would believe that was the case, where the angel was representing God. In other cases, it's clear that the people encountered God in the malach, in the messenger. But that's the whole point. He appeared in a few instances in human form or angelic form in the Old Testament, and then tabernacled among us, took on human form, and lived among us in the New Testament.
2: Yeah, Dr. Brown says a lot about this angel of the Lord and uh, tries to get it to show that God is somehow complex. In his writings, he makes, uh, he, he makes the point often that uh, how can God both be enthroned in heaven and on earth? He seems to, he doesn't quite put it this way, but he seems to suggest unless there are multiple persons or different parts of God or something like that. And uh, my reply to that, I skipped some of that in the rebuttal because he mentioned 50 other texts. Uh, but my reply to that is, it's very easy for an all-knowing, all-powerful God to appear in 47 different ways at once, to in some sense be in heaven and be on earth and appear in different ways. Um, about this idea that you should absolutize the statement that you can't see God and live, a uh, leading Old Testament scholar, Benjamin Summer says, what is surprising is how many people discover that there were exceptions to this rule. So it looks like in the Old Testament, Isaiah saw God, Amos saw God, Abraham, Moses saw God in some sense. Did they see him not in his full glory? Did they see a manifestation? Did they see an angel? These are disputed questions, but you don't build a theology on disputed
5: questions. Hi, thank you very much for uh, taking a little extra time with us and for answering a few more questions. I really appreciate it. This is something that's been touched on uh, briefly throughout the evening, but it's valuable enough that I think it deserves to be recapitulated, perhaps in a little bit different way. Um, uh, Dr. Brown, this question is actually for you. Uh, There have actually been a few things that have given me some pause in your view about the death of Jesus. I've heard you say that Jesus, you know, had to be God to pay for our sins. And of course, um, uh, Dr. Tuggy has challenged that with, well, how could God die? Uh, But Dr. Brown, you say that the death on the cross was really a separation. It was a separation of a body uh, and a spirit. Um, But the problem I see with that is that in 1 Timothy 6.16, it says that God can't die. It says that he is immortal. So that means that whatever death is, however you want to define death, whatever death is, God can't do it. So uh, that's problem number one. And then number two, uh, adding another layer of complexity onto that, you said many times this evening that the Son didn't die. Now, as a Christian, that gives me a little bit of pause when somebody suggests that the Son didn't die. Uh, the New Testament says in a few places explicitly that it was the Son that died. Um, the Son of God died. Jesus Himself, the person, the personality, He says, I died. I was dead. Um, God it says gave his son. It's the person of his son. That's who he gave. It wasn't a body. It's the death of the person of the son that is valuable enough to be worthy to be the sacrifice of our sins, which I which I know you agree with. So what do we do with a, a crucifixion uh, scheme in which, number one, God can't die, and then you say, yes, that God the son didn't die. So who actually died for our sins? How can you help us make sense of your crucifixion? Sure.
3: Uh, glad, glad to do that. Uh, allow me just to clarify that when Dr. Tuggy just quoted from Benjamin Summers, the wrong guy to quote, because the whole reason Benjamin Summers is saying that is because he holds a position similar to mine and he said, some Jews regard Christianity's claim to be a monotheistic religion with grave suspicion both because of the doctrine of the Trinity and because of Christianity's core belief that God took bodily form. No Jew sensitive to Judaism's own classical sources, however, can fault the theological model Christianity employs when it avows belief in a God who has an earthly body as well as a Holy Spirit and heavenly manifestation. For that model, we have seen is a perfectly Jewish one. So as to your question, a a spirit doesn't die, a body dies, correct? In, In other words, Paul writes... In Philippians 1, to be absent, uh, that he longs to be with Jesus, which is far better. That 2 Corinthians 5, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Revelation 6, the souls of those beheaded are under the throne of God crying out. So we understand that the human spirit doesn't die. The human spirit either goes to be with God or to a place of judgment, but the physical body dies. And we know that, and yet we say the person died. Right, someone died. Here's the obituary. When they died, what died? Their physical body. So, just like God doesn't die, a human spirit doesn't die. Jesus says in Matthew 28, "Don't fear people. You can only kill the body, but God who after he's killed the body can also destroy the soul or the spirit in hell." So, when Jesus dies for us, what dies? The physical body. What's crucified? A physical body. And the person lives in that body. So when the body dies, when the blood is shed, you say the person died, but that the spirit of that person didn't die. So the nature of God within Jesus never died, but the physical body died. We use that terminology a trillion times uh, uh, or a thousand times a day in terms of, you know, look at every obituary. That's when the physical body died. The spirit is either with God or in a place of judgment.
2: So, yeah. Um, Dr. Sum, Dr. Summer, who is a Jewish scholar, he seems to think that the Trinity is just God manifesting in three different ways. And If you think that, I see why you would love that quote. Um, as far as I can tell, your view is basically modalism, except that your modes or personalities are co-eternal, they're not one after the other. I think that's a disastrous view of the New Testament for the reasons I already said. Um, now about who died, Uh, I talk about this at great length in detail using Two Natures Theory in a presentation called Tis Mystery, All the Immortal Died. Uh, The problem is that to die is to lose all or most of your normal life functions. You think that the real son, which took on a body, is this divine person. And you think that divine life just went rolling along as normal. And so that's why you're, you're saying that he didn't die, you say the body died well to die again is to lose all or more of your most of your life functions to appeal to dualism doesn't help here uh, because we still think that the person in this in the casket is dead whether or not there is a soul that exists that's another point
9: thanks a lot for taking the extra questions he actually t- took my question so i get to ask another one but dr Brown, i would just say be very careful in saying that the this you, like question to... is for Dr. Tuggy. Oh for, oh, for both. I'll ask both of you then. Okay.
3: But he gets the longer answer though. Just we're going back and forth. All right. Yeah.
9: <clears throat> Jesus Christ said, "I died." Jesus said it. Let's not call him a liar. Jesus, the Messiah, Amar ani mati. Jesus, the Messiah, said, "I died." Let's not forget it. So my question is, it's kind of a quiz. In the book of Acts, let's actually back up to the last chapter of Luke, when the Messiah Jesus appears resurrected from the dead, what did he go back into the Old Testament to show the apostles? And then he does it two times in Luke chapter 24. And then what do the apostles in the book of Acts continually go back into the Old Testament to show the apostles? Is it the deity of Messiah or is it something else? Thanks.
2: Yeah, I mean, what they show is that the scriptures prophesy that the Messiah has to be killed unjustly and then raised and exalted. And um, I quoted earlier Acts chapter 2. Dr. Brown is insisting that it's essential to the gospel that you realize that Jesus is God and that God is in some way complex. I don't see uh, Peter preaching that. I see him preaching that Jesus was a man, which is my view and that God raised him, and the God he's talking about is the Father. And my view and Peter's view is that that is the one true God. I don't believe in two gods. I think the word God can some be, sometimes be applied to beings other than God, which is an uncontroversial statement for a scriptural scholar. And I think the word, there's the Lord God and there's the Lord Jesus, and the New Testament does not confuse them. In fact, it constantly distinguishes them. For us Christians, there's one God, the Father, and there's one Lord. I'll just take my one minute to be fair.
3: Okay, thanks. Please don't accuse me of misrepresenting or misquoting Jesus. Jesus on the cross says, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. Did he commend his body or his spirit? And he says, I have the authority to take my life back up. That's not just a human being. And by the way, I'm not saying Professor Sommer is a Trinitarian as I am. I'm simply saying that his views are used in support of our position quite frequently. And I'm not modalist, but I do believe you believe in two gods, so at least we're clear on that. Uh, Bottom line, bottom line, when a person dies, we are speaking about their physical body. He shed his blood. And when Jesus opens up the scriptures to his servants, what do they then write afterwards? They speak of the divine son, the one who was in the beginning, the preexistent eternal one, the one who himself is God. Where did they get that from? Obviously from Jesus himself. Thank you. Thank you. Can we show appreciation for our two debaters tonight?
1: Thank you, Dr. Tuggy, and thank you, Dr. Brown. Uh, Remember there are some books on the counter if you are interested in purchasing one of those. uh, There'll be people there to help you. Uh, We've gone a little bit long and they have answered uh, extra questions. And I know that a lot of you may want to talk. You can uh, thank them uh, if you want. But uh, if they need to get out and need to get on uh, home, then please afford them the ability to do that since we are already getting late. Thank you all for coming. And we appreciate you taking your time out to be with us tonight. God bless you. Thanks so much for tuning in.
0: I don't want to lengthen this episode any longer by adding comments here, but I just encourage you, check out restitudio.org, engage with this debate. I will hopefully follow up on this debate and would love to read your comments, whichever side of this you happen to land on. So check it out, restitutio.org. It's like restitution with no N. And you can find the debate Brown versus Tuggy there. Thanks so much. We'll see you next time. And remember, the truth has nothing to fear.